This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. I'm going to start with a story today. I must have been, I must have been 10 maybe nine, when I first started listening to sports radio. I was a young adopter, an early adopter, so to speak. I was living in the South Bay area. That made me a San Francisco 49ers fan and a San Francisco Giants fan. Had I grown up in the East Bay, I would have been an Oakland Raider fan and an A's fan. It was just that simple. It's what we were exposed to. In the station that I tuned into, because they had my Giants as the play-by-play product, was KNBR 680 AM. KNBR 68. Now, KNBR had a powerful signal. It had a strong lineup. It had Hank Greenwald on the call for the baseball games as the play-by-play guy and Ron Fairley later. And that's what I grew up on. And there was Joe Starkey calling the 49ers and Cal football. And uh, there was, uh, you know, that's what I that's what I came up on. But mainly, I came up on a show called Sports Phone 68. It was a late night, after hours call-in show that often served as the post-game show when the Giants had a game that was on that led into it. And now that I know more about radio, I kind of know where Sports Phone 68 sat in the hierarchy of shows. But for me, I was in school while their regular lineup was going on. I wasn't a morning listener. I wasn't a midday listener. I certainly wasn't listening after school. I had sports teams I was playing on. And I would tune in and often catch the Giants games, especially the night games that started at like 7 o'clock in San Francisco. And they would go tell... 9 or 10, 11 o'clock at night if it was an extra inning game. And then Ken Dito and Sports Phone 68 would come on. And Ken would uh, take calls. And he took a lot of calls. And he would, um, you know, a lot of the callers were deranged. A lot of the callers were not were not great calls. But it was my first exposure to listening to what other sports fans who weren't in my household, who weren't going to my school, were thinking about, talking about, and how they were feeling about the teams that I rooted for. And it was an eye-opener to me, and a a very early eye-opener, as I had that transistor radio tucked underneath my pillow. I would turn it on just loud enough that I could hear Ken Dito taking the calls from all over the Bay Area about the San Francisco Giants game that night and what mistakes were made and how Jack Clark needs to be traded and can you really live with a shortstop and Johnny LaMaster who is going to hit in the uh, middling 200s and 
but he'd be a good defensive player and what needed to happen on the roster and what moves need to be made. And I realize now, looking back all these years later, that I may have been laying the foundation for what ultimately became my career in sports. I was 9, I was 10, I was listening to that show religiously. Hell, I even called in a couple of times if it was on on like a Friday night and I happened to be uh, uh, available and... Uh, you know, I can barely remember getting on air, and I don't even remember what I said, if I said anything of substance, but I know that I called in and I participated. And I know that a couple of decades ago when I started this radio show, and I wrote about this today at johnconzano.com, one of my first um, experiences in the office when another sports radio show host found out I was going to be hosting a show was that person felt like they should impart some wisdom to me. And the wisdom, I'm using air quotes, that they gave me was they said, don't take calls. They said, callers are idiots. This person was not a fan of letting the audience have a voice. And I can remember at the time thinking that, gosh, that's a weird position to take because my idea for going to radio, I already had a newspaper column. I was already doing television. But both of those formats, I felt like, were one-way conversations. And the whole idea or the whole premise for me getting a radio show was now we're going to be able to have a conversation about it. And I can remember Kevin Pritchard, who was a Blazers GM, very fairly early in my radio career, saying that he liked the radio format because it gave him an opportunity to, to turn it into a debate or to have a conversation. It wasn't just me saying, this is how it is. And so it was really confusing to me to have... A veteran radio host who I respected telling me, don't take calls. The callers are idiots. And it's true that sometimes the callers will call in. And over the years, I have found that sometimes the callers uh, don't raise points that are salient. Sometimes the points disintegrate with every syllable. And, but other times, callers will make me think about something I hadn't thought about. Or they'll speak for a segment of the audience that uh, needs to have a voice. Or they'll raise a point, and it'll become a pivot point in the, in the show that's a great pivot point and cause a whole other discussion that is an important discussion. And in that, I have to tell you, over the years, I've taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of phone calls. Um, this came up, and I guess I, I guess I should just say the Dabo Sweeney, the coach at Clemson, he hosts a coach's show. You know, a lot of coaches do. And somebody asked me, how does how does Dabo Sweeney have a radio show? Well, some of these coaches are contractually obligated to appear on radio shows. It's part of their contract. He's getting paid to do this coach's show. Nick Saban gets paid to do a coach's show. They have a sponsor for it. The university goes and sells that sponsorship. It's in the coach's contract that he has to do the show. And then the athletic department monetizes said show to help offset the cost of the coach's contract, right? I mean, this is all part of the game that is being played. And so it's not like Dabo Sweeney has this great love of sports radio, but the Clemson coach, who has a couple of national championships in a seven-year run, is now 4-4 four and four, and coming off a loss against North Carolina State. And he got a call from Tyler in Spartanburg that has sparked a big debate. Um, Tyler in Spartanburg throwing a little shade at Dabo Sweeney. I'm going to let you hear part of that call. appreciate everything you said, Coach, Coach Sweeney. Um, it sounded a whole lot like Tommy Bowden. And I'll tell you one thing, Tommy Bowden didn't make the, the same amount of money as you do. You make $11.5 million a year 
and I, I respect the fact that you're a man of faith. Um, I'm curious uh, if you've ever read Proverbs 16, 18, which talks about pride coming before the fall. You're humble, you're hungry and everything. And I, I always told people, man, Dabba, just listen to his press conferences. But after that 2018 national t- title, something changed. And there seems to be a lot of arrogance that came in. So I'm curious. Why are we paying you $11.5 million to go four and four? And it's not just this year. Tyler and Spartanburg had called into the coach's show, and then the coach at Clemson had enough of it. All right. And you can tell that, look, there's a little bit of a head football coach being thin skinned in Dabo Sweeney's response that we're going to play here. But some of it also could be that uh, he was, this is just something that he's been thinking about. The fact that he's delivered national championships to Clemson, as many as Georgia, as many as Alabama in a seven-year period, and now he's 4-4 four and four and he doesn't feel appreciated. Here's Dabo's response. He had a five-minute diatribe that he went off on. Here's about a minute and six seconds of it. All right, all right. What's this guy's name? Tyler. Hey, Tyler. I've, I've listened to Tyler. enough of you, Tyler. Listen, uh, you, can, you can have all your opinions that you want. All right. I don't know how old you are. Don't really care, right? But let me tell you something. Uh, We won 11 games last year, and you're part of the problem, to be honest with you, because that is part of the problem. It's people like you that do that. All you do is the appreciation, the expectation is greater than the appreciation, Hmm. and that's the problem. And so, you know, we've won 12 10-plus win seasons in a row. That's happened three times in 150 years. So if you want to know why, Clemson ain't sniff a national championship for 35 years. We've won two in seven years. And there's only two other teams that can say that, Georgia and Alabama. Okay? Is this a bad year? Is this a – yeah. And it's my responsibility. Take 100% responsibility for it. But all this bull crap you're thinking, all these narratives you read, listen, man, you can have your opinion all you want. And you can apply for the job. And good luck to you. Good luck to you. So there you have Dabo Sweeney. And I want to know this. This is what I am want to ask our audience and our callers. I want you to tell me, first of all, when you hear a caller like that and you hear a coach pushing back like that, do you hear a thin-skinned head coach who maybe should just expect that for 10 or $11 million a year that he's going to take some criticism when he goes 4-4? Four and four? Are high fan expectations actually a problem? Are losses harder to swallow after a program has had success? So after you've won big, are any is any kind of setback diff- more difficult to swallow? If so, why? And this whole expectation versus appreciation thing has me thinking about Mike Riley at Oregon State who came in and won 28, uh, 28 games in a three-season span. It has me thinking about Dan Lanning winning 10 games in his first season, Jonathan Smith winning 10 games last season, and how the Duck fans were disappointed with a 10-win season and how Oregon State fans were elated with a 10-win season. I guess what I'm getting at is I want you to kind of evaluate radio callers, fan expectations, coaches, who maybe hear the noise a little bit differently. I had a coach tell me in the last couple weeks that after a loss, he knows better than to get on Twitter. He knows better than to check his phone. 
But you better believe it. The coaches are reading. They know what I write. Dan Landing knows that I was critical of him. Jonathan Smith knows I was critical of him. It That's part of the job. But you tell me. I want you to tell me when, when callers call into the show, even if they are a little bit deranged, even if you do find yourself muttering, what an idiot, is there... Is, there, is it possible that this cycle that we are in as sports fans with, in this affair that we're having with our sports teams, is it possible that, that that cycle gets skewed by success? Is it possible that the coaches, uh, you know, like, like Dabo Sweeney, have forgotten where they started? 503-417-7575. You tell me who's right, who's wrong. Is Tyler right for calling out the coach? Is Dabo Sweeney right for saying, hey, the appreciation here does not meet the uh, expectations? You tell me where you stand. Sam in Portland's going to lead us off. He's got a question for me. Go ahead, Sam. Well, John, I don't know who Sam is. This is Batman, but uh, he is a great caller. My question to you is, have you ever thought about taking your show on a national level? You do a fantastic job really dealing with all the uh, the callers and, and, and you know, I think you could be as as good nationally as you are locally. I mean, Pat McAfee, for God's sakes, has got a a uh, a show. He's not a journalist, so that's my question: Is have you ever thought about going nationally? Has it ever presented itself to you? And if you had the opportunity, would you? And and I want to just follow up with saying, not all of your callers are idiots. You have some great callers. That the Sam, which an honor to be you know mentioned in the same. Uh, praying with Sam, he's a great caller. He calls in all the time. He's always got great points. I don't know what the hell salient means, but hey, uh, Alfred, what'd you say? Uh, John, I gotta go. The bat signal's on. <laughs> Sam in Portland calling in. Look, the show's already on a network in the state of Oregon. Uh, obviously, we're on in Klamath Falls. We're on in Eugene on Fox Sports Eugene. We're on in Roseburg. Uh, I appreciate all of those affiliates. There are some plans to grow the network into more cities and uh, and and get new places. Of course, we're on in Portland and Corvallis and Salem, everywhere in between, and into Southwest Washington. But um, for me, I I don't think I would have interest in doing a show like those national guys do, because I think you lose connection with the with the things that you're supposed to be covering and things you're supposed to be talking about. And how do you talk about everything all at once to everybody? I I don't know how you do that without losing that connection and so i i think i would pref- much prefer to grow it more regionally and have it be a pacific northwest slash um slash pacific time zone type thing 503-417-7575 i told you how i grew up listening to radio steven did you listen to radio as a kid did you listen to sports radio uh not a whole bunch during as a kid but when i got older you know back in high school and then college is when i started really listening you know like junior senior year in high school you know, driving to school, that's what I would listen to. Um, you know, to, to go on the callers or idiots points, I think that every caller has a right to their opinion. Now, all all of our opinions are never correct, 100%. Like, mine's never 100% right, yours isn't 100% right, and so the callers are definitely not going to be 100% right, but I think it is important to have callers call in and give their their sense of what they feel about their program. Like, that caller talking to Dabo Sweeney saying, what are we paying you for? Because... In sports, it's all about what are you doing for me lately? And we've seen lots of coaches win championships, win lots of games, and then be fired because they haven't necessarily evolved 
to what is going on in the state of their sport. And we look at even you know a guy like Mac Brown, in North Carolina. They start out really well. They've lost two in a row, and it just looks like he hasn't evolved to what's going on. Uh, you know, Chip Kelly was a guy who. At UCLA, it looks like, well, maybe he's going to get fired, but he evolves, and now he's growing his team to be a really good team again. So it just, I think it is important to be able to have fans call out coaches and players, and I think it's important to have you know media members uh, have that opportunity to call out players and coaches because that's that's what they need. Like you, you need to be critical. That's that's your job to do it, and I think it's the fans' job to want to win and want to be uh, critical of your team as well. I do think I'll push back because I think that fans. Forget where they've been. Forget the level of expectation, the delight that they had, you know, at Oregon State. It's a great example last year. The delight that Beavers fans had last year in getting to 10 wins. It was a marker that hadn't been achieved in a long time. It had come in the wake of several seasons earlier, six seasons earlier, Gary Anderson quitting on the team midseason. It had come from rock bottom, and and it was built you know, essentially, I you know, I had I'd drawn the comparison of, you know, Jonathan Smith had basically planted a seed, watered it, and then sat on top of it. And one day he woke up and he was on top of a tree. Like, it, it was that kind of growth. It made sense. It was slow. It was deliberate. It was, and for that reason, it was very rewarding. The, um, the Oregon story is different because, you know, Oregon had slow growth under Rich Brooks, even had some slow growth under Mike Bellotti, but Chip Kelly brought the catapult out and just, you know, created this machine that he climbed into and catapulted himself to the top of the tree that way. Like he didn't it wasn't slow growth with Chip Kelly. As much as the diehard longtime Oregon fans want to say, hey, this was a program that had continuity, it did. This was a program that was built on something, it was. There was an acceleration under Chip Kelly that was that was rocket fuel. And and it was fun and it was exciting and it was interesting. And I also think it was a little bit, um, it was a little bit unnerving for some of the diehard longtime Oregon fans because they were suddenly surrounded by a whole bunch of new fans who had just shown up or maybe were younger, and all they knew were BCS bowl games. And then you contrast that all these years later with two teams that have ten win seasons, almost identical. Seasons as you talk about wins and losses. Oregon State beat Oregon in the Civil War game last year. Oregon State got its 10th win in the bowl game. Oregon had a 10-win season. Dan Lanning in his first year, it should have been celebrated as, hey, as a nice first season for a new head coach. But instead, people said, you know what? It's not good enough. Or Duck fans were like, not good enough. Oregon State fan might be feeling that this year. If Jonathan Smith finishes with nine wins or eight wins or doesn't have the kind of success that he had a year ago, I just wonder how patient Oregon State fans are going to be. I think within reason, expectations and hope are good things, but I don't think you should get caught up on the same, like this, the ring culture that Giannis was talking about at the end of the season. Like It's not that it was a pointless NBA season because he didn't win a championship. It's just a little bit skewed when you have so much expectation and Dabo Sweeney talks about the appreciation. I get what he's saying there. I understand it. Is there should there be some type of middle ground? Because I, I look at Oregon State, right? Like you could go with your daughter who's been at Oregon State the last couple of years, and they've been really good. And then yep. I go with my uncle and aunt who went to Oregon State back in the '80s, I believe, 
where he said, yeah, we'd go to football games for a quarter and leave because we knew it was over. We'd win one game a year. And so now, like, he's very appreciative of every single thing where I could see where like, your daughter would be like, no, they need to win. Eight, yeah, nine she's games upset when they lose. When right. they lose, she's upset. So, she expects them to win every game. Is there so, it, Does there need to be, like, some type of, uh, like, a meeting, like a middle ground that both fan bases can be happy about with a seven-win season? Because I look at it from... It's possible, right? Your daughter sees it, and it's possible that they could win nine games a year. That's the expectation should be. So that would be my expectations going forward. I don't want to go backwards. I'm always looking to go forward. Yeah, and I and I think some of it too is you know what else do you have going on in your life? And I think for sports fans, you got to ask yourself that. Like I, you know, I posted the column about Tyler and you know he in Spartanburg, and he's you know somebody in the comment section pointed out like you know i wonder what else is going on in tyler's life what else does he have outside of clemson football and i think sometimes fans who are in maybe a town in south carolina and football is all they have or they're in the sec footprint we always say oh they're unhinged oh they're they're deranged oh those are fanatics that's where the word fan is born from and but really i think you know you go down and you spend any any amount of time in those footprints and you realize, like, this is generational. There isn't an NBA team that they follow. There may not be an NFL team that they follow. It's what they have. It's their thing. It's all their eggs in that one basket. And so when Alabama has an off season like it's having this year, or when Clemson is 4-4, four and four, God forbid, after playing for national championships, um, it's, it's, it's emotionally, uh, you know, catastrophic to some people. And I think... Having the balance of going, hey, yeah, of course you want your team to win. Of course you want 9, 10, 11, 12 wins. Of course that. Everybody wants that. But also being able to kind of handle it and frame it in the perspective of the program is another thing. And I do think Oregon State fans who are really upset. I heard people after last week's game. Jonathan Smith made a terrible call. His fourth down, he goes for a fake field goal. I bet you 100 times out of 100 in the future, he kicks the field goal and takes the points. This is a coach who has resurrected a flatline program, and I literally had people write to me and say, how can he look Beaver fans in the eye after that game? And I'm like, huh? Like, do you not know that, you know, the argument that you'd make in the face of that is, did you see the program he inherited? Do you understand the the expectations that, that you feel faltered uh, with him going for a fake field goal were built entirely by him? Like, it doesn't make the decision any less painful that he went for a fake field goal, but come on, let's have some perspective. Let's go to the phone lines. Paul is in Eugene. He wants to talk about Dabo. Paul, what do you hear there when you hear Dabo Sweeney? Uh, John, I hear a few things. I think that the fan, I think that the caller uh, is emblematic of all fans. Maybe his expectations are out of line. I think I think Sweeney uh, is a little too thin-skinned in the moment. Uh, he, he he's got to be able to roll with that kind of with that kind of criticism. But that leads me to my final my final point is the longer the more over the last 24 hours that I've read about and listened to this exchange, I'm beginning to wonder if that caller was a plant. Sweeney had all of these stats at the ready. Uh, in his rebuttal, he, he has this nice catchy line about appreciation and expectations. And uh, it felt like Sweeney was ready for that call. And uh, uh, that's all I want to say. I think that guy's a plant the more I hear the, hear about this story. I, I don't think so. I don't, because I, I, I think, 
if you know we've I, I agree with all right let's let's unpack the whole thing i i agree that coaches are sensitive i think players are sensitive there was no more sensitive thin-skinned player in the portland market than damian lillard in the last decade i mean come on you criticize his defense you criticize his offense you say he and cj mccollum can't win because they're an undersized backcourt i mean it's all true but, you know, he had a hard time hearing it. I think sometimes professional athletes and coaches who are in a position like Dabo Sweeney get told over and over and over again how great they are, how wonderful they are, how awesome they are, how talented they are, how smart they are. And then in the end, when they start having a little bit of struggle, Dabo's an idiot. He can't, four and four, not good enough. What are we paying this guy $11 million a year for? And all of that starts to sound very loud to head coaches who maybe aren't used to hearing that kind of criticism. And I don't think Dabo Sweeney had that kind of criticism for a long time at Clemson. I don't care where he's come from. I don't care what he's been through. It had been a while. And so I think it's jarring when when that happens. And I think people get really upset. I also think that there's a real vocal minority in the fan base, on Twitter, on sports radio shows. Uh, there's a vocal minority that tends to be louder than anything else that that you uh, that you hear, and you really start to pay attention to that, too much attention to that fact, if you're a coach like Dabo Sweeney, because I don't think that was a plant. Stephen, do you think it was a plant that that caller was planted there? Uh, no, I don't think it was a plant in there, but uh, I do think that these coaches know that they're going to be prepared for these type of uh, questions by the fans, right? Like they, you, you mentioned it. These coaches, they hear everything, right? They want to act like they don't, but they pay attention to what's being said. So. No, I don't think it was a plan, but I do think that Dabo was ready to say, look, man, we, we've won a lot of games. Only Alabama and Georgia have been more successful than us, and yada, yada, yada. So, no, I, I think no plan, but these coaches have to be ready because they know that it doesn't matter what you did last season, the last couple seasons. It just matters what you're doing now. And at 4-4, four and four, I think, you know, I don't think that there's going to be any, like, Dabo shouldn't be fired. There shouldn't be questions of that, but there's going to be fan, you know, some of those crazy fans that come out and say, you know what, what are you doing for us right now? What are you doing lately for us? I love the calls on the show. And I don't think, like, I think the vast majority, 85, 90% of the people that call are well-adjusted, normal people. You know, you hear the callers. And then there might be a 10% that are out in left field. But I, don't, I also think it's good for us to hear from left field now and then. I think it's a reality check for us all. And, and if, if you're sitting back going, no, I agree with 100% of the calls that are calling in, you're full of it. Like, there's just no way. I don't agree with that. You can't agree with 100% of what I'm saying. It's just not realistic. So I think sometimes it provides, this kind of discussion provides a wonderful opportunity to kind of do a check and a balance. And I can remember over the years, I've had a number of coaches that come on the show. You know, Mike Bellotti, Rich Brooks, Mark Helfrich, Dennis Erickson, Mike Riley, Gary Anderson, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal, Dan Lanning. We've had them all on the show. And I find it interesting, you know, we used to have Helfrich on, and Helfrich would only come on, I don't know if you picked up on this as a listener, but I picked up on it as host. Helfrich would only come on the show after he'd won a game. He would never accept a request to come on radio after a loss. And I thought that was telling. And I thought, and in the end, I think it hurt him. And I think his relationship with the media hurt him. And I think his relationship and his failure to connect with you, the listeners and the fans, hurt him. I think it's something that Dan Lanning does especially well. You know, if you look at the the coaches of the last five or six years with Oregon, I, I don't think anybody's connected in the way that Lanning has with his fan base. John, do you think it's a responsibility for the coaches to know what the fan base is thinking about them or about their program? 
No, I think it could be distracting, but I think they can't help. They can't help but, you know, they can't help but Google themselves once in a while. You know, I'm sure, I know that the coaches at Oregon and Oregon State both listen to this show. They both, they've told me that. Assistant coaches, head coaches, they either listen to it live or they listen to the podcast. I had a couple of assistants tell me they listen to the podcast when they work out. I had other people say we listen on the way home. So I don't know what part, portion of the show they're catching, but they're, they're listening to the show. There's a recognition there that they are paying attention. And I don't think they're listening because they won't necessarily want to eavesdrop. I think part of them, they're sports fans. And I think they're going, all right, what are people talking about today? And, you know, how are people reacting to our team? What are, what are they saying about Oregon? What are they saying about Oregon State if they're on the other side of this thing? And so I think that goes on all over the place. But I don't think they have a responsibility to know. But I do think it, hurt, it hurts them when they don't connect, when they don't connect with their fans, when they don't connect with their with their stakeholders. Yeah, what would you say they have a responsibility to not to come on to these type of shows and, you know, face the music when they're wrong? Like we talked about Lincoln Riley, you know, just yeah. kind of going away. Is it, does he have yeah. the responsibility to face the I th- music? I think he does. And I and I think it, I think it's a bad look when you only come out and you talk like I think Lincoln Riley here's a great example. It's just like Mark Elfrich. After he loses to Utah, a totally different act than, you know, and then what he would be had he beat Utah. And I think that is pretty telling. I think you learn something about somebody in those moments. Let's go to Wes, who's in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Wes, go ahead. How you doing? First time, long-time listener, first time on the show. Thank you. A uh, couple of things. You know, Dabo, yeah, he's got some stuff to deal with, and that's, that's part of the thing. But if you want to see some true hatred from some fans, watch the Beckham documentary. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Is it good? Holy heck. I mean, talk about hatred for, for somebody. It's like death threats. It's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's legit. It's legit hate on another level. And yeah. just watch, you know, the way the media treats people in Britain is way different. <laughs> Some of the stuff they say, it'd be like, they'd never say that in the United States. But, yeah. but then again, they Diana off the road, and, you know, took her life and quite the mess. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's painful to watch. But some people can think about other people until he scores a bunch of goals and wins the, wins the big trophy, and then he's yeah. everybody's son. Yeah, but think, think about how silly that is. Think about how silly it is, because I can remember as a sports fan, and maybe you can too, in growing up with your team, that there was a time when they, my team was my team, and it and it actually didn't matter if the shortstop was hitting 228 or 298. It didn't matter. That was my shortstop. And at some point in time, maybe I grew up, maybe I matured, maybe I started seeing the game differently. It did start mattering to me that the shortstop was only hitting 228. But I didn't for a minute think, you know what? I, I You know, if I had a chance, I'd punch that guy in the neck. No, I you're not thinking like that. And, I, and if you are thinking like that, I think you need to take a step back. I had Oregon fans who reached out to me after the loss to Washington days later saying, DMing me, saying, I'm still not over the loss. And I'm thinking, is it, okay, it's disappointing, but this is your diversion. This is supposed to be fun. It's like you're mourning like 72 hours later. John's in Tiger. John, welcome to the show. Hey, John. So, I got a question. You were talking about coaches that, uh, and, and, and full disclosure, I'm I'm an OSU Beaver, right? Okay. But okay. I'm talking about Chip Kelly because I remember I listened to you for a long time, and I remember you talking about that sometimes, as brilliant as Chip was, 
with his coaching and how he brought something really, really new to Oregon that a lot of times he kind of had a, a thick skin or, or didn't really connect and was kind of, you know, abrupt. How would you view a Chip Kelly compared to, like, a Dan Lanning or whatever? Yeah, yeah, great. That's a great question. Chip Kelly, you know, when he took over as head coach, the Ducks had a long-standing practice of the head football coach traveling to Portland on, like, a Tuesday for a Duck Club luncheon. Coach would come down. He would, they would have lunch. The coach would talk about the game that week, and it was a bunch of boosters in the Portland area, and then the coach would drive back up. Well, Chip Kelly did it his first year because Rich Brooks and Mike Bellotti, that's what they'd always done. And in Chip Kelly's second year, he said, I'm just going to Skype into the meeting. And what's the point of having that drive? And driving and taking that time out of my day, I'm supposed to be coaching football. And and so Chip just had a very different way of looking at things. But you're right. He wasn't warm and fuzzy. He wasn't one to be walking around like making you know boosters and fans feel like they were part of the program. He viewed his role to get first downs and score touchdowns. And that was his role. Now, Chip and I, Chip had a thick skin. He was also a New Hampshire guy. He's from the East Coast. And he liked to give it. And he liked to you know dish it out. And he could take it when you when you gave him criticism. And I think in some ways... He respected you if you did criticize him fairly. Now, I'll take it as a badge of honor that Chip Kelly and I had some bad arguments. And yet today, like yesterday, I texted him and I said, hey, I got a question in my mailbag about sleep habits on the airplane. And Chip answered the question and then three hours later texted me again about something else. And so, it, you know, I take that as a badge of honor in it, that, the, you know, he's a guy that is still interested or respects you enough to to engage with you even though you don't see the world the same way and but you're right he isn't he wasn't a warm fuzzy head coach who was going to be um you know interested in making everybody feel like they were important to him he you know he had a mission and very different very different than Dan Lanning cuz I think Dan Lanning is a recruiter and I thought about this today he's not just recruiting players he's recruiting you duck fans he, you know, he's. I think he he's trying to connect with Duck fans in the same way he tries to connect in living rooms when he's recruiting. Uh, we'll take more of your phone calls. 503-417-7575. You got the BFT. Well, we're talking about fans and coaches, the reaction that fans have to losses, expectation versus uh, obviously reality. Dabo Sweeney, the Clemson coach, upset at a caller on his coach's radio show kind of goes off on it uh, i want you to tell me what you make of the expectations that you have for your programs are you occasionally unrealistic are you willing to be real about that let's go to the phone lines josh in vancouver josh what's on your mind hey john thanks for uh thanks for taking the call so let me let me start off by saying i got no problem with Dabo sweeney's position and here's why um I don't personally think that his defensiveness comes purely from a place of he was defensive on his own behalf. I think Dabo Sweeney has been successful enough and he's good enough at what he does that he understands that the noise that's currently in the media or noise currently coming from the fan base and the frustration and the, the expectations that have been placed on Clemson's success I think he understands that that noise reverberates through every fiber of his program. I think he understands it hits his assistant coaches. I think he understands, more importantly, that it'll hit his players. 
It'll hit his recruits. And I think a lot of that position came from the idea that he wanted, when sitting in you know, team meetings or addressing the team later, he wanted to be able to look at those guys with confidence and say, hey, I got your back. I'm not going to let anybody just drag us through the mud. Now, is there an argument to be made that there's a better way to handle it? Sure. Of course there is. But uh, in large part, you know, that caller was completely disrespectful. And, you know, sometimes you, you, get, you get as much as you're giving, I guess, is the way that I could say it. Uh, to address fans in general, yeah, absolutely. I mean, fans and fan bases have unrealistic expectations. And uh, I, I think it's, and, you know, John, I've called it before on many topics, and we've talked about things that are just a microcosm, right, of our society and how our society conducts itself and handles itself. And I think that that, that caller is just an example of some of that, right? We're losing the ability as people to address things respectfully and tactfully and ask hard questions in ways that, um, you know, can still have an element of tact to it. And we're just, we just go straight to being a jack wagon and, and saying inappropriate things and being aggressive and attacking. And then, you know, you got part of a fan base that immediately gets defensive and says, oh, the poor caller's a victim. And, you know, and then you get another part that's like, oh, well, they get what's coming to them. You know, it's, I don't know. It's just kind of a mess. But i, I got to be honest with you, man. If football coach, I'm looking at him right now in the eye, you know, post that phone call saying, you know what, Coach, thank you. Thank you for having our back. Have a good day, John. There you go. I mean, yes, Coach's ultimate responsibility is to his locker room, ultimately. And I felt that over the years with different coaches that I've covered. Certainly Chip Kelly – I think Chip Kelly got better over time, and those of you who have noted that, I think we really watched Chip Kelly become a head coach. He had never been one before. Come from New Hampshire, he was a play caller, he was assistant coach, it was small-time college football. Got to Oregon, suddenly he was like looking around going, I'm game planning for Ohio State, okay, cool. And, and then we watched him take over a program and figure out how to be a disciplinarian, and then we watched him go to the NFL, and frankly now he's come back full circle at UCLA, and I think he's at a point of his life where he's kind of enjoying what he does. And, uh, you know, and, and look, I had my, I got sideways with Chip Kelly a few times. I got sideways with him over his discipline early in 2009, 2010. And then I got sideways with him at the end when, you know, he got, he told me he never heard of Willie Lyles before. And then I came to find out through records requests that he had, you know, texted him like two minutes before he told me that. You know, it was like just ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, I, I get it. You know, coach's ultimate responsibility is to his program. Doesn't have a responsibility to me. But if you want to connect with your your fans, your stakeholders, I think in the end when you have a 4-4 four and four start to a season, Mark Helfrich found this out, I think that you have a lot more currency build up with that fan base if you have been willing to engage, if you've gone to the luncheons, if you have been somebody willing to um, stop in the grocery store and talk to people, I think when things are going wrong, it humanizes you a little bit. And I think that's where Mark Helfrich went wrong. Cam is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Cam, go ahead. Hey, John, thanks for taking the call. You asked about how we grew up listening to sports radio. I'm actually the son of a small-town play-by-play guy for local radio. So I grew up in the media booth on top of the uh, the high school stadium Love up there it. watching them call games, being super quiet. As for the Clemson thing, um, wanted to point out that he mentioned pride. 
one thing that the Clemson fan base is upset about is that Dabo won't use the transfer portal. There, and I think he didn't come out and say that in the call, but when he was talking about being prideful, I kind of took that as maybe, you know, Dabo's been too proud to give him the transfer portal. And that, that could be a big sticking thing, win or loss with the team. Um, for myself, I'll always be in the moments after we were snubbed and passed over and we didn't get to play for a national title game against Miami. And so I'm always going to have national title game anxiety. The Ducks are always just knocking on the door. And, and I'm always right there just waiting for it to happen 20 years later. Yeah, and I think uh, you're okay with, you know, those of you who are waiting for the college football playoff rankings to come out and waiting to react to that, uh, I think you're uh, well within your right to expect the worst if you're a Pac-12 fan, not just an Oregon fan. I think the perception of this conference over the years has, has really harmed the teams that have tried to get to the playoff and play in the playoff. And there's a lot of little things you can criticize coaches for. it. But do you think, Stephen, do you think that Coaches making $10 million, $11 million a year. Do you think that has increased the criticism, that people expect more of the coaches because they're making the money? Yeah, I do think that. I also think it's the fact that we now have more open forums to do it, and people are not afraid to you know, say it behind a blank blank thing on Twitter or a blank thing you know, on social media, stuff like that. So yeah, I think the, the money does... Uh, is a big problem because you look at the money it costs to get into games. Not only are these coaches getting paid a lot, but those prices have gone up a lot too. So, you know, just an average guy like me, if I want to go to, you know, an Oregon game, it's going to cost me a couple hundred bucks just to, you know, get into the door, regardless of who they play. And so then when they don't play well and they lose a game, well, yeah, if I'm a Duck fan, I'm going to be mad about it. Now, I do think fans take it over the top, right? But I think that's also the role of the fan is to almost lose your mind a little bit and get lost in it and say, you know what, why did the Ducks not win that game? And then I think it's the role of people you know, like you to come out and say what really needs to happen. Like you very rarely, I don't know that you ever really have, like called for people's jobs, right? Like I think fans will call for people's jobs where you're like, no, hold back. Like Dan Lanning or, you know, Jonathan Smith, don't, don't act like he you know hasn't done anything at Oregon State because he lost one game to Arizona. Like there's fans that are mad and like Jonathan Smith, you know, you're, like, you're saying he's going to have a hard time facing the fan base. You're like, no, he's not because... You know, you have a you have a more stable mind to it. I, I think it's just kind of the role of the people involved in all this stuff. But the money is a huge issue, John. Like you know, it it just is always money is always going to be an issue no matter what it is. Money is an issue. Money's a reason. I think it's interesting to watch coaches as they receive criticism, how they handle it. I also think it's fascinating to see that Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney both have coaches' radio shows, and we kind of know that those two guys are maybe a little more thin-skinned and more reactionary. Um, I want to ask Anna when she comes on the show later, you know, high-profile people who are in the spotlight, politicians, business leaders, coaches, entertainers, athletes, um, how should they handle criticism? Not criticism just from media members, but... Criticism from fans, criticisms from stakeholders, ticket holders who aren't happy or are frustrated with the performance on the field. Speaking of which, we're going to go to Boulder, Colorado next. Brian Howell with the Boulder Daily Camera is coming up. He, he is going to talk to us about Colorado football, Oregon State heading to Boulder. What's going on with Coach Prime and that program? Well, we're talking a lot about sports radio reaction, fan reaction, media reaction. When things don't go well for your team on the field, 
Dabo Sweeney and Clemson, 4-4 four and four this season on the field. We talked all last hour about fan expectations, reactions. Uh, I want more of your phone calls at 503-417-7575. How much of it has to do with coaching salaries? How much of it has to do with media expectations? How much of it has to do with the fact that Dabo won a couple of national championships? Same thing going on in Boulder. Season started with what? A lot of hype, a lot of expectation. Colorado got off to a wonderful start, captured the country. And some of the shine has come off. Deion Sanders in the Colorado football program. But still some eyeballs on the program. Interested to find out what's going on in Boulder. Brian Howell covers the team for the Boulder Daily Camera. He is the beat guy. He's the go-to. He's joining us now. Let's talk expectations. What's What's been the reaction with Colorado fans? Probably some high highs and some low lows. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of the high highs were in September and some of the low lows were in October. Um, you know, October's been maybe a little bit humbling for them. I mean, obviously, you know, late September they go up to Eugene and, and get humbled up there. But, I mean, uh, this has been a tough month for them on the field in that, uh, you know, that Stanford loss was really brutal. And uh, and just not that they lost to UCLA, but the way um, Shador was just battered and the offensive line looked uh, was really tough for fans to watch. So um, it's been disappointing because I think the way that this season started at 3-0, and you expected better than 4-4 four and four at this point. But at the same time, if you follow this program, and the longtime fans are probably pretty thrilled with 4-4 four and four right now based on how it's gone the last several years. The, the, the reaction on sports radio, I mean, are people in Boulder after 4-0, were they talking conference championship? Were they talking playoff? Or did they have their feet on the ground at the time? Well, I think there's a lot of people caught up in the hype early on and when they're ranked and, you know, even Dion's fueling some of that talk of, uh, of Heisman Trophy with, you know, Shador and Travis and things like that. Um, I think people are getting caught up in that. And, you know, game day was showing up and, you know, a big new kickoff was here every week for a few weeks. And so people are getting excited about that. But I think the reality has kind of set in and, and people have realized that, yeah, this team still has a lot of work to do and that it doesn't turn overnight. Brian, I, I got to ask, you know, the 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 winless season or the one and eleven season from a year ago made anything that Colorado did a win this year. Winning two games would have been a great season with the with the uh, with the added revenue and the season ticket sales and the spring game. How long until fans at Colorado do you think? How long until they get restless and they want a ten win season or else? Like, are, you know, is that even crossing anybody's mind at this point? Well, first off, I'd say I. It's funny that you said winless season because I often tell people that last year they were one and eleven and not as good as their record, <laughs> you know. So it's winless last year, but um, it, I think that you know, people are still excited about what Dion's doing, and um, they're excited that they've got a really good quarterback and that they've got some really good players with Travis Hunter and a receiver, um, and really all over the field they got good players, but they're just not uh, everywhere. You know, they don't have great players on the lines yet. And, and uh, they believe they're going to get there. I mean, people are excited today because the top offensive lineman in the 2024 class announced he's going to visit this weekend in Boulder. And so uh, people get excited about that. Um, I don't think that he has to – he necessarily has to get to a bowl this year. I don't think they have to win 10 games next year. I think that they have to look really good next year 
and uh, and be much better than they are this year. I don't think they necessarily need a 10-win season in 2024. I think it's interesting to watch Oregon as an example, you know, or Oregon State even. Oregon State was kind of in the position that Colorado was in just a few years ago when coming off a 2-10 and season, and now they win 10 games. And I think this is kind of the year where if they don't get 9, 10, 11 wins, Beaver fans are going to go, what's wrong? What's happening? Is that just sports fans everywhere, Brian? I think so. I think that once you start winning, you know, you get a taste for it. People want it more and more and more. You know, I remember covering the the Rockies in 2007 when they went to the World Series, and there was all this talk that they were building this, you know, National League dynasty, and they could be around for a long time. Well, it was a one kind of a one hit wonder, you know, and so and people were disappointed two years later when those guys were getting traded off. So you kind of expect those things, and um, you know, I, I heard the the whole thing with uh, Dabo the other day, and um, I I, ba- I, I back him on that. I mean. You know, look, fans. I mean, when your team has won ten plus games twelve years in a row, and your program hadn't done that, you got to be happy with that. And uh, when you're at Colorado and you're sitting at four and four, and really over the last fifteen years they haven't been four and four through eight games very often. So you got to be take that uh, for what it's worth and say, yeah, that's pretty good. We're we're doing okay. We're on the right track. A lot of these teams have changed. Uh, I think about Utah in week one to to last week, different team. Oregon State might be a little different. Oregon's certainly different, seems to have evolved. How has Colorado changed from the early part of the season to the team you see now suiting up? Yeah, I, I think that teams have kind of caught up to them a little bit. And they, now that there's game film on them, I think the first few weeks of the season, especially week one, um, I think that they really benefited by nobody had any game film, film on the 2023 Buffaloes. And I think that really helped them. Um, and you know, maybe helping them get through Nebraska as well. Uh, but I think once people have some film on them, they can, they can see the holes, and, uh, and Colorado hasn't adjusted as well. And they also don't have the players in a lot of places. And so I think some of the, that some of that is getting exposed, um, especially on the offensive line and uh, places in the defense as well. And so they're just having to adjust to those things. And, and really what we're learning is that uh, the adjustment has to be made in the offseason for them to go get more players and better players at certain spots. Coach Prime coming out saying, calling his offensive line out. How has that gone over with players? Well, we don't know how it's gone with players um, because we don't, we don't get a whole lot of access to them. But um, he did uh, meet with us today, and he actually told us that um, he had a meeting um, with the offensive line after that game and uh, and just him and the offensive line. And he thought that was a really good meeting and that um, he, he said, you're going to see a more cohesive, more prepared and a tougher group this week going forward than we've seen. And so um, I think that he kind of called them out after the game, but then went back, had a meeting with them, put his arm around their shoulder and said, hey, look, guys, we need you. You're better than this. And, uh, you know, from what he was telling us, you know, that was a really good meeting. So we'll see how the players respond, but at least that's what Dion has told us. Brian Howell, Boulder Daily Camera, covers Colorado. Oregon State has not been as good on the road. I think this is a favorable place for Colorado to get him. I think if this game were at Research Stadium, I would give Colorado no shot, but this is a home game in Boulder. What will the environment be, the atmosphere be for this game? Yeah, it, it's interesting because uh, they've had, their game time's been weird. They're, they're either as early as possible or as late as possible, and they haven't actually done very well with the 8.30 starts and or the 8 o'clock starts, and those are the games that, like, um, you know, they're, they're favored big against Colorado State and they barely win in overtime. Their favorite big against Stanford, 
cough up the lead and lose that game. So those are some of the 8.30 games they've had. Uh, and so this one's kind of that same uh, same thing, the 8 o'clock start. And so I'm curious to see how they respond there. But it is the homecoming game. Um, I think that the fans will you know, be excited and be ready to have them back at home. And uh, they usually play better at home than on the road. Uh, but, you know, we'll see what this week. I mean, it's a tough matchup because, as you know, Oregon State runs the football and Colorado does not stop the run very well. Yeah, it's a tough one. I still think this season for Coach Prime has been successful, and I know that probably gets lost after 4-0 turns into 4-4, but I still think you look at the momentum, the excitement, the visibility of the program, and you go, okay, that's a building block. Do you get a sense that he's got another move to make next year, that this is a program that can take another big step forward? Yeah, absolutely. Next year is so interesting, though, because not only is it year two for him, but it's year one for the program back in the Big 12, and um, it's a whole new set of opponents. And you know, usually we can kind of project uh, a year looking ahead because you know who they're going to play. You know, and you, you, we've seen these Pac-12 teams year over year. Well, you know, I'm an AP voter, so I, I do pay attention, but I haven't seen these Pac-12 or these Big 12 teams much, and really, you know, dissected them much over the years. So. Um, it's hard to say what they're going to look like, but um, I do think that the opportunity is there for teams like Colorado, Utah, and Arizona um, to really make a move in the Big 12 next year. And I think Colorado is set up um, to be one of those teams that could be up in that in that upper echelon of the Big 12. 100%. I, th- I think Colorado will compete a lot faster for a championship in the Big 12 than they would compete if you know, if USC and Oregon and Washington aren't in the way, I think those are bigger hurdles. And I, I'm with you. I think Utah dominates, and I think Colorado contends or competes in year two and year three, certainly. Brian Howell is with us. Um, is there a player or two on this Colorado team that you think has emerged in the last uh, couple of weeks that uh, you didn't see early on? Yeah, you know, one guy is safety Roderick Ward, who – who um, was a transfer from Southern Utah? That uh, you know, he got in there when Shiloh Sanders missed his game with. Uh, he got injured at Oregon and uh, missed the next game, and he got in there and led the team in tackles. And he didn't play a whole lot the first three, three, four weeks. Uh, well, he's been a staple in the in the starting lineup now to the point that you know they've been struggling at linebacker, and they moved Trevor Woods, the safety, up to linebacker because they want not only Trevor but Roderick Ward in there. And so Ward's been playing really well and getting eight, nine, ten tackles a game. And, and uh, you know, he had a big hit against uh, UCLA and forced a fumble the other day. So he's a guy that has emerged as safety. And then offensively, you know, they just they just have different guys that show up every week. It's, you know, Travis uh, Hunter and Xavier Weaver, who we know about. But then every week it could be somebody different that's that number three guy or even, you know, above <laughs> Travis or Xavier. So um, they have different guys, different weapons. And it kind of depends on who Shador is comfortable with that week. What happened – with the jewelry in the locker room at the Rose Bowl, the news reports are alarming. Normally you have security guards and police that are watching the locker room. What's the latest on that? Yeah, he, you know, Dion talked about that today. and um, Nothing really new, but um, just him saying that he hopes that they get reimbursed. And he kind of called out and he said, hey, NCAA, you have your hand in everything else. Let's <laughs> fix this and, and get these guys reimbursed. And yeah, that's kind of a point there. Um, but he's hoping that they get reimbursed for that and, um, you know, I haven't heard anything new on it as far as the investigation, but uh, it does sound like you know there were several players and coaches, and and really one of the guys that uh, um, does one of the YouTube channels that follows them 
had some cash stolen out of his bag as well. So, wow. um, you know, several people got hit um, from the CU's program. And, you know, Dion said today, as well, from, from here on out, you know, we're going to have our own security watching the locker room so that that doesn't happen again. And so it's unfortunate that that happened. And, you know, hopefully those players get, you know, compensated somehow for what they lost. You, we, we've watched coaches take criticism when they lose games. Dabo Sweeney goes on his coach's show and he kind of, you know, goes off on the caller. How has Coach Prime handled the criticism? Is there criticism of his program or are people still kind of saying, hey, look, this is house money? Yeah, you know, I think there's always criticism. There was criticism when they were winning, when they were losing. Um, you know, I tweeted this the other day after the game, that or exit, whatever it's called now. But, um, you know, there was a lot of talk before the season. I had people telling me he's going to be a nightmare when they start losing and what's it going to be like when he starts losing. He's the best post-loss coach I've ever dealt with, and um, he's really good with us to the point that uh, the other night at UCLA, you know, the SID at one point after about, Nine minutes is like, all right, we've got time for two more. And two more questions happen. And then uh, Dion looks and says, no, I'm good. Just keep going. And he talked for another 10 minutes. You know, and um, instead of cutting off at nine, we went like 19, 20 minutes. And so um, he's really good with us post-loss, and he takes the criticism. And, uh, you know, he's kind of – he often fires back at us. and Not fires back, but he'll respond to us by saying, look, I don't care about the criticism. I'm going to get it either way. We're just going to kind of, kind of keep doing our thing, and we'll get there. Don't worry. Ryan Howell, Boulder Daily Camera. I will see you at the stadium. Excited to see how these teams match up. But you've been all over this uh, all year long. Thanks for all you're doing, covering the team, and and for joining our show. You bet. Enjoy Boulder this weekend. All right, there he is, Ryan Howell, Colorado, four and four after a four and zero start. Let's take some phone calls. We've been talking about coaches. We've been talking about thin skin. We've been talking about fan expectations. The great Roy in Portland joining us, Georgia Bulldog fan. Roy, help us out here. Hey, how you doing, John? Doing all Listen, right. Listen, John, man. That's just the way it is, man. I guarantee you if Kirby Smart has two losing seasons, it's going to be <laughs> fans talking about he has to go. We don't care about a national championship, what you did before. If you, if Kirby, I'm telling you right now, if Kirby Smart have two or three losing, if he has three losing seasons, he's done. I don't, we don't care about a national championship, what you did before. That doesn't matter. I mean, look at LSU. Ed Orgeron won a national championship. Two seasons later, they fired him. Okay? They don't care. No, the, the, the fan base is down in the SEC country. They do not care. If you start with uh, Gene Tizzik is another example of Auburn. He beats Oregon in a national championship, win a national championship for Auburn, they fire him two seasons later. Because he had two, one mediocre season and one bad season. He went 0-8 in the SEC. It's what have you done for me lately, okay? And when you're making the 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 money that these guys are making, I'm, you, <laughs> you got to take the criticism, man. I mean, you're making $11 million and stuff like for coaching the college football team. And just Dabo, man, I love Dabo, but just say, hey, man, you know, it is what it is. We're having a bad season. I'm sorry. Just hang in there. We'll be better next year. That's all you have to say. Yeah. You know, as long if I'm making $11 million, John, as long as my check is good on Friday, I'll say it. Okay? I love it. <laughs> Makes you it easier. You you want to. Okay? <laughs> but I'm going to the bank and cashing my check on payday. Okay? That's right. So it's I don't like... care what you say or what you call me. Hey, as long as I, like I said, as long as I'm cashing that check, 
Is you all good with me? You got to expect some pushback, man. You haven't you been the fans, and I guess when the fan when you start winning championships like that, and we know all the success he had, and he really put Clemson back on the map. Well, when you start getting that high level of uh, success, fans expect something. But a lot of this problem is on Dabo's own stuff. He won't adapt to NIL. He won't do it old school way. He won't adapt to the way college football is changing. He's got a problem now because Kirby Smart is at Georgia, so now he can't get to Deshaun Watson. He can't mm-hmm. get Trevor Lawrence now because Kirby is getting all – he's not letting – Kirby get all of that. That's why I could – I knew this was going to happen to Dabo, John. I knew it. I said as soon as Georgia got good – Dabo's championship ride was over because he's been living off of Georgia players for the last 10, 10 years. And it, and it's, it is just, he's got to do something and adapt and, you know, and just take it on the, just, you know, take it on the chin, man. Don't worry about it. You know? Yeah. I think too, some of it is coaches have success. They have so much success that I, I'm going to say this. I think they become arrogant. They start believing the headlines I'm a genius. I brought you, how dare you question me after I brought you so much success. And I uh, heard a little bit of that in Dabo, but I also heard a very rational, reasonable person going, hey, 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 like your expectations don't match your appreciation. You know, we went to two national title games in seven years, and that's not good enough for you? Steve's in Portland. Steve, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John, thanks a lot. That that interview from Colorado was awesome, and the last caller pretty much took what I said because I was listening to that interview thinking, call the Wambulance. If you've got $11 million and you can come up with every statistic in the book prepared to answer that, you can hire somebody in PR to teach you how to respond on your feet to a caller. And I agree. It's like you're going to come out and say, hey, I'm not going to take players off the portal. I'm going to do it the old school way, and I'm going to win. And then you're 4-4. Four and four. It's like, come on, cash your check, be the bigger man. It's the expectation of the job, and it doesn't matter if you're in business. Like what I'm in or what everybody else, the higher up you go, the more shots you take, but you become the bigger person. And I don't think he, he took the high road on it. So yeah, I, I'm with the last caller. I think he summed it up well. Yeah, I think here's the other thing. Don Draper, madman, you know, he would say, that's what the money's for, $10, 11000000 million. But what if we take the money away? What if... Athletes becoming paid causes coaching salaries to plummet. Eight, nine, ten million a year becomes a we can't pay you but two, three, four million a year because we have to pay the athletes now. What if that happens? Does that mean that the coaching expectations should drop? Well, I don't I don't think so. And if the athletes are getting paid, John, are we okay to criticize them, right? right. College athletes, right now I feel like you know we, we don't necessarily criticize them a lot, but if they're getting paid and we know their salary is you know, $2 million, is it okay for us to criticize them? I don't know. But is that partly why Caleb Williams, Shador Sanders, some others that we know are making uh, seven figures in the NIL space, that those guys, are they held to a different standard? Because we know that they are being paid. Uh, Chad's in Portland. Chad, go ahead. Hey, what's up, John? Love your show. Listen, every chance I get, man. Uh, I'm just going to point out that Dr. Pepper has a whole series of commercials that advertises about us crazy fans, you know, promoted. <laughs> I think it's even expected. And as a leader or a coach, you know, like, Dabo, you just got to have some humility. Be honest with yourself about your BS and 
nobody's unquestionable. I mean, I got to deal with my own BS now and then. It sucks, but <laughs> you know, I like. Love it. I like. Uh, like, how do you get a delay of penalty? Uh, delay of game penalty on the first play of game. Look at you, Dan Lanning. And John, I just want to say you handled my overreaction to Monty Williams blowing a playoff game a few years ago with like a ton of grace. Yeah, and that's what you gotta have. You gotta have a little bit of grace, man. I appreciate you. That's I'll right. take it offline, man. That's, that's what I'm here for. I'm here here to let the air out of all that emotion. Um, it's not life or death. It, nobody's fighting a war. Nobody. Uh, this isn't the economy. This is sports. That's let's start with that as the premise. That said. I understand why people are fired up when their teams don't win. I understand why Blazer fans are disappointed with the season that has started one and three, and maybe they're elated that they are one and three. I don't know. Jack's in Vancouver. Jack, go ahead. Hey, I just have a a couple questions for you. Uh, First of which, with everything going on at Clemson, how short of a lease is Dabo on? And then my second question is, with um, Oregon and Texas, does it seem that they, they missed a step after playing Oklahoma and Washington, respectively? But why has Oklahoma and Washington been struggling with their competition as of late? Do you think it's because they got exposed by Texas? Yeah, lo- lost you there. Um, Stephen, did you happen to hear the end of his call there? I lost him there for a second. No, he cut out of my end. He cut out. All right, but let's just say how long of a leash does a coach who delivered – Two national championships at Clemson. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with his contract. He's certainly raised the expectations. It's kind of like Oregon. Oregon, at, in the wake of Chip Kelly, Mark Helfrich going 4-8 and eight wasn't good enough. And in the wake of Chip Kelly, even though Oregon owed Mark Helfrich almost $15 million, they had to say goodbye and let him go And and because the expectations had changed. It didn't matter that Mark Helfrich had taken Oregon to a national championship game and delivered a Heisman Trophy, everybody looked at him and said, those were Chip Kelly's guys, and we're too good for this. You know, this 4-8 and eight stuff stinks. We're too good for it. Dabo's a little different. How long of a leash does he have? I mean, I think he has a longer leash than coaches who may have come in after there was some success. But, you know, he's making he's making the money. I'm look, I'm gonna look at his contract status just to see what uh, you know how many more years how much money they owe him, but his contract runs through 2031. He signed a 10-year, 115 million dollar deal that gives him an average of 11.5 million. He's making 10.8 this year, but an average of 11.5 million a year, and he's got eight more seasons on it. That's too much money if you're Clemson. Too much money in today's world when you're in the ACC and you're not making great money in, in the uh, media rights space. Um, too much money. So I think he's got a long leash. I think he. everyone looks at him and points at him and says it was him who built it. It isn't like he's the second guy. He's not Mark Helfrich coming after Chip Kelly. He's Chip Kelly. And so I would ask you this. How long a leash would Oregon have had for Chip Kelly if Chip Kelly had won two national championships in seven years? There's the approximation. He would the leash would have gone on forever. I mean, you know, I I think the expectations at Clemson are certainly sky high, but everybody knows that Dabo himself is the one who created them. So I think the other the thing I think you got to think about at Clemson is that Dabo Sweeney pulls a Mike Riley. Mike Riley was at Oregon State. 
You know, he inherited a program that hadn't gone to a bowl game in 28 years. He handed it off to Dennis Erickson, ready to blossom. Erickson took it to the Fiesta Bowl, certainly got everything that he could out of it. He leaves. Riley comes back for tenure, two. It's a different program, right, that he re-inherited by, by you know, Erickson's standards in his own. And then Mike Riley goes on in 2006, 2007, 2008 to win 10, 9, and 9. Great. Awesome for Oregon State. Maybe not so good for Mike Riley, though, because winning seven or eight or six in years after that really stood out. People who had forgotten what it was like to not go to a bowl game in 28 years suddenly went, what the hell? What is this about? Riley's lazy. Riley's got to go. He's complacent. He, you know, he doesn't do this. He doesn't adjust. He doesn't recruit. And Mike Riley, in the end, what did he do? He said, well, they don't appreciate me. It's kind of like what Dabo Sweeney was saying. They don't appreciate me anymore. And what did he do? He left for Nebraska. Would Dabo Sweeney pull that? Would he leave for an SEC job? Would he leave for a Big Ten job? I don't know. But I think it's certainly an interesting conversation, and I love having it. Leave it here. Well, the first set of college football playoff rankings are out and I, if you're like me, your eyes went right to, what, the top four, and then where is Oregon? Where are the other Pac-12 teams? Are the teams uh, in the Pac-12 conference getting, uh, getting the respect that they deserve? Number one in the CFP rankings, it's Ohio State. Georgia's two. Michigan's three. Florida State is four. Washington comes in at five, and Oregon at six. I thought Washington might be at four in Oregon at six, but if you're the Pac-12, you have to feel really good about having the number five and the number six teams in the college football playoff rankings. Steven, your rapid reaction to seeing the top of the CFP initial rankings. Yeah, I was a little surprised to see Oregon so high at number six. I didn't know that they would be the number one one-loss team of the nation, and that, that's exactly where they put them. So, I, you know, great job by the Ducks to get up that high. Uh, the other interesting part I thought, John, the Bees come in at 16, but Utah at 18, UCLA at 19, USC at 20. So a lot of those teams right in the meat of it. You know, it seems like you know when you play those teams, you're going to get top 25 wins. So like Bartu says, yes. you know, it's all about those top 25 wins. Pac-12 is going to have a lot of them, a lot of opportunities uh, for the Ducks to continue to stay up and you know get those wins. And Washington and all these teams get a lot of top 25 wins. So I thought the Pac-12 was uh, nicely represented, I thought, in these. And I thought the Ducks were overly almost uh, represented at number six. Yeah, look, if you're a Pac-12 fan, I think the biggest takeaway that you have to have when you look at the college football playoff rankings is you have to feel good about seeing two of your teams in the top six in the rankings. Yes, that makes you feel good, but it's the other four teams. It's Oregon State. It's Utah. It's UCLA. It's UST. You've got got teams at 16 through 20. They're going to help fortify and boost up those teams that are sitting, Washington at five and Oregon at six. Now, if you're an Oregon fan, I think you take great delight in seeing that despite the coaching miscues that might have cost you a win at Husky Stadium, despite the fact that you lost a disappointing game against your rival, despite the fact that uh, you know historically the Pac-12 teams have not fared well in the college football playoff, here you are sitting in the initial inaugural Pac-12 uh, you know, college football rankings and you're sitting as a Pac-12 team at number six in the poll with games coming up against a, t- a USC team that's at 20 and against uh, an Oregon State team that's sitting at 16, 
among those that are left on the schedule. I think Oregon is sitting pretty as you look at this poll. I think it's a great, uh, probably an exciting day for Oregon players and coaches who say, okay, we're within a striking distance of the top four. All you have to do is take care of business throughout the regular season. And for those of us who thought Oregon's loss to Washington spelled, you know, Oregon on the outside of the CFP rankings trying to fight their way in, I think the committee sent a message here that, that they saw that as a quality loss, if there is such a thing. They saw it as a road defeat by three points to a team that happens to be sitting in the top five. And so Oregon is now back in control of its own destiny, so to speak. I mean, all Oregon has to do is win out the rest of this season, take care of the games that they will be favored in, and they should be favored in every regular season game, get to Las Vegas, and get a rematch against Washington on a neutral field, which is what everybody was thinking and saying in the wake of Oregon's defeat to Washington. Is it, is it uh, a silver lining? Is it uh, uh, good fortune? No, I think it, it's born of the fact that everybody can see that Oregon has a great quarterback in Bo Nix, a really balanced team that has a great run game with Bucky Irving, a defense that is that went into Salt Lake City and shut down Utah, and you know, gave Michael Penix Jr. all he could handle until the final minutes, and and I think that's a, a sign of a show of respect from the committee to an Oregon team that has earned it. Uh, now they're going to have to continue to earn it, and if you're Dan Lanning, you have to know there are no more mistakes that can be made. There can be no more, you know, not kicking the field goal before halftime. There can be no more putting, uh, you know, going forward on fourth down and three and not getting it. You that was your mulligan at Husky Stadium. Oregon's got to be perfect from here out to make the playoff. But but the fact is that Oregon sitting at six as the highest-ranked one-loss team in the country has a puncher's chance to get to the college football playoff. And I think you could not have asked for more if you were an Oregon Duck fan. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you look at Texas. I, we Bartu thought they were going to be ahead of Oregon because they have that win at Alabama. But it almost seems as if, John... The committee is saying that win at Utah is a lot more than we thought it was even going to be, and how that's a very important win and how it looks. So, I mean, if you're a Duck fan, you got to be ecstatic because you're right. Ohio State and Georgia are going to play each other, and then if the Ducks beat Washington and the you know or whoever in the Pac-12 title game, they're in the College Football Playoff, and I think that's all you can ask for right now, especially after that you know heart-wrenching loss to Washington. So, Ducks are in a great spot right now. A uh, little shocking actually, but uh, you know, I'll take it if you're a Duck fan. The expectations at Oregon State have changed. Can we be real about that for a second? Jonathan Smith inherited a program that had Gary Anderson quitting midseason. Threw the keys in, gave $12 million back just so he wouldn't have to coach the program one more week. That's how bad it felt for Gary Anderson. Jonathan Smith inherited that. We all know he won 10 games a year ago. We all know that Oregon State has had some ups and downs this season. But can we look at the inaugural college football playoff rankings where we see Oregon State sitting at 16 in the top 16 in the polls, only behind Washington and Oregon, a program seemingly left behind by Power 5 football, still punching, still fighting, still getting respect from the college football playoff selection committee. If you're Oregon State, you have to recognize that the expectations have changed. You have to uh, recognize that the landscape is shifting beneath your feet. And you have to, I think, appreciate watching Oregon State, the fact that they are still there and still standing. Had a very disappointing loss at Arizona. 
Coaching miscue, shouldn't have kicked, uh, gone for a fake field goal, should have just taken the points before halftime. Where have we seen that before? Uh, also, they had a disappointing three-point loss on the road at Washington State. But it's clear that the college football playoff selection committee looked at Oregon State and went, you know what, that's a good team playing in a good conference, and those are good losses. Those three-point road losses are good losses. That said, here comes Colorado. And here comes Stanford. And I know that Colorado and Stanford have had some nice moments this season, but it's time for Oregon State to put its foot on the throat of two programs that should finish in the bottom of the standings in the Pac-12 and demonstrate that they're worthy of being a top 15, top 16 team in the college football playoff rankings. Oregon State's role here isn't just to validate Oregon and Washington by playing them late in the season as a ranked team. Certainly the committee has set that up, that Oregon and Washington can get a quality win by going to Corvallis in Washington's case and by beating them at Autzen Stadium in Oregon's case, get a quality win against a ranked opponent late in the season. It's all set up for the Ducks and the Huskies, but the Beavers have an opportunity as well. They can muddy this thing up. They can create a two-loss tie with Oregon. They've got the head-to-head tiebreaker if they end up in a tie with Oregon. So look out for the Beavers down the stretch. They, too, are in control of their own destiny, when it, not, not as it pertains to a college football playoff berth, but as it pertains to potentially getting to Las Vegas. Oregon State, as a two-loss entry, could still get there, but they've got to win out. They know there, there are no more mulligans for Jonathan Smith. There are no more, hey, uh, we didn't play well, or, oh, we should have kicked the field goal and we didn't. There's no more of that available to Oregon State. They've got to win out. But, man, it is set up for the Beavers in much the same way that it's set up for Washington and Oregon. It's going to be a fantastic finish to this season. I'm excited to see it. I want your reaction. What did you think of the rankings as they came out? 503-417-7575. What jumped out at you? I want to hear from you. you got the BFT. Statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Inaugural rankings for the college football playoff are out. Uh, I had Oregon at number six. Uh, I wrote that on Sunday at johnconzano.com that Oregon would be at number six. There they are at number six. The win over Utah, valued by the college football playoff selection committee. Ohio State is one, Georgia's two, Michigan's three, Florida State is four, Washington five, Oregon six. If the Ducks win out... They are in the college football playoff the way that I see it because you've got Michigan and Ohio State having to play each other. Uh, I would presume that the committee would would, uh, lower the ranking of the loser of that game. And I think if Oregon wins out, wins the Pac-12 championship game, particularly if it beats Washington in the championship game, I don't see how the committee could keep the Ducks out. What's your reaction to the CFP rankings? Oregon State checking in at 16. Pac-12 with numerous teams, including uh, Utah at 18 and USC at 20. Mark in Portland, your reaction to that? Go ahead, Mark. Well, my first reaction is, thank God next year's coming so I don't have to listen to this crap over and over (laughs) about who should be in and who should be out. I mean, it didn't surprise me, John, because there's a big difference between the committee. With what they got, they're trying to, to be fair. You had somebody bring up 2001. 2003, the Pac-12 outright champions were purposely shafted for staged uh, games, national title games. Oklahoma was the beneficiary. And if you look at 2001 
2003 and 2004, the the, Pac- the Pac-12 champion was left out twice. USC was uh, and Auburn, who was undefeated that year, they stuck Oklahoma in there also. So they were Oklahoma. I don't know what they had with the original BCS, but that the committee's trying to do what's fair, and you got four spots and five major conferences. Four champions have to get in. I mean, it's going to cause a lot of uh, controversy if, if Alabama beats Georgia and Georgia doesn't get in, but they shouldn't get in. There's four spots with five major conferences. You have to win your conference. That's And that's why I think the committees, they put a lot of emphasis on that, and, then, and that's why if Oregon wins out, they have to play three more top 20 ranked teams even by their standards. So I don't know how, if you start them at six now, how you can – bump them back and have anybody pass them if they beat everybody on their way. So it looks like, yeah, they control their own destiny. I knew that as soon as Oklahoma lost. But I'm still rooting for Alabama to lose again and Florida State. You want those teams to lose just in case. Yeah, get them out of the way just in case. Um, It looks like Washington and Oregon are in the same boat at five and six. But the committee has done a nice job, I think, of setting it up so that you know, Oregon down the stretch has got some opportunities to play some ranked teams and get some quality wins, get some top 25 wins. But there sits Oregon State, two-loss Oregon State, at 16, still getting respect. Two-loss Oregon State could throw a wrinkle into the whole thing by beating Washington or beating Oregon and causing a uh, multi-team tie at the end of the season, which would cause a tiebreaker. That could be a lot of fun. Gary's in Tualatin. Gary, go ahead. Hey, John. Go Ducks. So what's the difference between the Rose Bowl and the National Championship? You earn your way to the Rose Bowl. Um, Oregon, this game is going to be uh, tougher than the last game because it's bigger than the last game now that we're, you know, on our way. Uh, you know, it's win or go home, and our defense has got to get even better because, really, Cal is going to be better than Utah uh, because their quarterback's better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think, Cal, look, the difference is, I think, the the home environment at Autzen Stadium is a, a lot different than trying to go to Rice-Eccles Stadium and win. I also think that Cal is decent but not great, and I think USC – Let's be real. USC is decent, maybe good minus, but not great. USC's not great. USC's not going to beat Oregon at Autzen Stadium. USC, though, could throw a wrinkle this week. Steven, do you give USC a puncher's chance in a game against Washington this week? I do, yeah. I mean, you look at you look at USC's weaknesses, uh, and it's defensively, and then you look at Washington's defense, or weaknesses is defensively. So it's going to be one of those things where, you know, USC might give up 50, but we saw last week against Cal, they can score 50. So I definitely give USC a shot to win this week. Uh, I, I'm leaning that way right now if I had to pick it uh, if I had to pick it right now. But, yeah, USC, they're still a talented team, and it looked like the offense was still in, engaged. I think that was the question going into last week. Is Caleb Williams going to show up and be engaged with his team? And he was. And so, I, yeah, I think that they, you know, this is kind of going to be their Super Bowl. And they still have a chance at the Pac-12 title game, John. Like, I think – I think we just kind of eliminate them because of the way they've lost the last couple of weeks, but they still only have one loss in the Pac-12. Like, they're right in the thick of it. So if they get a win over Washington, they're right in the midst of it. I want to ask you this and just get your thoughts on this. 
it really bummed me out looking at the college football playoff scene, Oregon State at 16, because they're getting respect, right? They deserve the respect. They're getting it. Yep. If they had won that game against Arizona, think about that matchup when they play at home against Washington. That's a top 10 matchup. Oregon State might be 8 or 9 in the college football yep. playoff, and they're hosting a top 4 team. Like, that just would have been... So dynamite that it just bumps me out that Oregon State had to go and lose that game, man. I, then you know we talk about the fandom and how how it bumps us out, but that one does. It it hurts a little different just because that game would have been so much fun. Yeah, it 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 makes it a shame what happened, but also I think we have to be real, and I think Oregon State fans, diehard fans at Oregon State, would acknowledge this that you know losing at Washington State raised some eyebrows, losing at Arizona raises some eyebrows. Oregon State is really good. They and and they they run the football. They're especially tough at Racer Stadium. I have no doubt they would be undefeated if those two games that they lost happened to be at Racer Stadium. But they're a step step and a half behind Washington and Oregon if we're being real, as talents go and as you know uh, you know being a complete team goes. They're you're going to have an opportunity to play both of those teams at the end of the season. Now, it's conceivable that they could end up causing a tie and causing the Pac-12 to have to go to a tiebreaker. If Oregon State wins out, including beating Oregon in the Civil War game, and Oregon arrives there with one loss and leaves with two, both of those programs would have two conference losses. It would cause a tie. And if it's a head-to-head tie, guess what? Beavers are going going to Las Vegas, and going to play for a conference championship, likely. And that, it, that and would kind of define the Pac-12's history. It would it would be the most Pac-12 thing ever. Like, you know, hey, uh, Oregon, you were really good. We all wanted you to see, see, see you play Washington, but you couldn't get by Oregon State. Now the, the, you couldn't get by the team that nobody wanted, the third yeah. in the side, Oregon State. Yeah, so Oregon State still has a path to Vegas, but it, it's a tie path. And they hold, you know, they have the distinction of having head-to-head games with Washington and Oregon left at the last two games of the season, which is interesting. Now, if Oregon State wins both of those games, and let's just say USC knocks Washington out this week, we could have a three-way tie or a four-way tie with two teams holding two losses. And the tiebreakers are all on Pac-12, you know, .com, on the website for the Pac-12, right, un- right under the standings. The multi-team ties get pretty complicated. But I've thought all along that the second position for that Pac-12 championship game could come down to a multi-team tiebreaker because I could see multiple teams having uh, two losses, fighting for the last uh, last spot in the uh, in the conference championship game. But... I think, look, it's great to see the Pacific Northwest teams well represented. I think that's another takeaway. You know, the Pacific Northwest is in there. There's an Oregon State theme that is in there as you react to the rankings. What else do you see? Let's go to Craig, who's in West Lynn. Craig, what do you see? John, I'll make it short and sweet. I I just, I can't get past the fact that were it not for some blown uh, coaching calls against the Huskies, the Ducks would be in the top four, and, yes. and that's just tragic. That, that that just should not be the case. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I agree they'd be in the top four, but I also think the bonus is, you know, you, you had those mistakes, and you're sitting in the same position. If Oregon were sitting at number four, they'd be in no different position than they are at number six. They still have to win out. They still don't have a mulligan. 
you know, and I and I think you know it, it'd still have to potentially play a conference championship game, and it would be Washington hoping to get there and beat them. So Oregon's still got to get to the conference championship game and win it. But I think a one-loss Oregon Ducks team, based on what we're seeing in the poll right now, the ranking, the initial rankings, a one-loss University of Oregon team is in the playoff. Like Stephen, do you see any way around that? Uh, no, and, and I think it's huge. You know, we've gone back. Think about the non-conference schedule, John, or or the Pac-12 started out so hot, and we they got all this respect, whether it was due or not. I think it's coming into play right now with the college football playoff. And you look at it and say, you no, know, Oregon can't Oregon can't afford a loss, but they can get in with one win or with one loss, and I think it's pretty much guaranteed. So I I think the reputation that the Pac-12 built at the start of the season coming in and playing big benefits coming into the college football playoff. Yeah, look, I think uh, big benefits also. Well, high stakes as we uh, as we uh, will go through this every Tuesday when the rankings come out. Rob Mullins, who served on the selection committee and served as the chair of the selection committee, uh, told us that um, you know it's it's just as tense in those discussion rooms. But uh, you know, I, I I had predicted on Sunday that Oregon would be at number six, but I was betting heavy that the committee was going to put weight on that Utah win, and they did. I'm going to say, and you get mad at me because they lost to Washington. I, I wouldn't want to play Oregon right now. I agree. <laughs> I, if, you're asking me, if you're asking me who I think the best team is, not the most deserving, I'm not saying they should be number one. If you're asking me who I would not want to play, it would be Oregon. That's a hurt for you. Make sure he's covering, covering all his bases well, there. Maybe, but I'm going to tell, I was tell you this. I've been, Coach Rose, honest, I've been saying, I think Oregon can win the national championship. Yes, they can. That's, well, that's why I pointed it. out that yeah. they, if you look at the last couple weeks, yeah. since the Oregon-Washington game, if you said who looks like the better team, it's not close. Oregon mm-hmm. looks like the better team. Kirk Street and the crew on ESPN with a very different tune this year versus last year. Remember last year? I can't unsee Oregon losing to Georgia in week zero. This year, everybody thinks Oregon not only could get there, but that nobody would want to play him. Washington at number five, Oregon at number six. That's the big news in the college football playoff rankings. Selection committee came out with their rankings today. The inaugural set of rankings are out. It is Ohio State at one, Georgia at two. Michigan at three, Florida State at four, Washington at five, Oregon at six. If the Ducks or Huskies win out, they're in. There's no way around it. It is set up for them. Georgia will uh, obviously, uh, you know, is the best team in the SEC. Ohio State or Michigan, one and three. One of those teams will lose because they play each other. It is set up nicely for the Pac-12 Conference for the first time in a long time. How will the conference screw this up? We don't know. A little rapid reaction here, John. <laughs> if Washington were to lose to Oregon State and then beat Oregon somehow in the Pac-12 title game, mm. do you think they get in? No. I think a loss, well, it's a loss to a ranked opponent on the road. Yeah. Depends how they lose. Right. It would depend how they lose. and But I think right now, I'm safe to say that if both win out, undefeated Washington, conference champion, is in. 100%. And a one-loss Oregon conference champion would be in. So I think the Pac-12 has two teams that just have the same have the same plan right now. Win out and you're in. Anna has popped into the studio. She's all fired up. It's Halloween. She's got the 5 at 5 all ready to go. She's been working on this all day long. You ready for this? Yes. All right, here we go. The 5 at 5. 
The Five at Five. Number one. I got to remember to wait for that. Uh, Deion Sanders pretty fired up. He's calling out the NCAA and the Rose Bowl, asking them to launch an investigation about the belongings of several staff members and players being stolen during the team's loss to UCLA on Saturday. Those belongings were believed to be cash and jewelry taken from the locker room at the Rose Bowl. He calls this an unbelievable travesty says he expects the NCAA to do something about the theft. Um, I don't know. Is that possible? Does the NCAA have any teeth? No, they're not going to do something about the theft. But I think it's just another way to call attention to the fact that the uh, NCAA is making making some money and has some control. We heard from Brian Howell earlier, the Boulder Daily Camera, who joined us and talked about this story. And he said that, you know, it was Coach Prime sort of throwing that out there. There was also apparently somebody that wanted part of the video crew lost some of their equipment too, lost some money. Um, I'm just I got curious. I got questions for the Rose Bowl security staff. Like, why was the locker room not staffed? Why didn't they have a security guard there? This feels like an inside job to me. Number two. It's a very dramatic pause there. Um, so we talked yesterday about this death of the hockey player that um, died in the midst of a game because he had his throat slashed yes. by an ice skate during yeah. a collision yeah. on the ice. Right. Adam Johnson, uh, my goodness. So just 48 hours after that happened, the English Ice Hockey Association, he was playing overseas, um, says it will make it mandatory for players to wear neck guards starting in January. They announced that decision saying that the safety of the players must take precedence above all else. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the American, like the National Hockey League says, because this is overseas and this is where yeah. this happened. The, in the NHL, you got players, I mentioned this yesterday, the players are very, they're creatures of habit. You know, and some of them are using the same shoulder pads they used in junior hockey, same undershirt. They they have habits. They, they the arenas are increasingly warm in temperature. The players have complained about this, saying that the arenas get warm. They don't like to have like turtlenecks on underneath their jerseys. But I don't know. I saw the video of the play where the guy got his throat slashed. It looked like a dirty play. I mean, it didn't look accidental player literally kicked his leg up as the other guy's skating by and some are suggesting that you know he was a dirty player who had a whole bunch of penalty minutes and in other uh, hockey leagues i don't know it just looked kind of freakish and and i i don't encourage you to go googling it either you ready yes number three uh point goes to shannon sharp Brett Favre had sued the broadcaster for defamation based on comments that Shannon Sharp had made in 2022, saying that uh, Sharp's comments were egregiously false. Sharp was talking about an ongoing fraud welfare scandal in Mississippi, where Favre, along with dozens of others, are accused of misusing tens of millions of dollars over a several-year period. Well, a U.S. District Court judge uh, has issued his ruling saying that 
Sorry, Sharp's comments are constitutionally protected, rhetorical hyperbole, using loose, figurative language, and dismiss the suit. Not surprised there. I do think that in order to collect damages, you got to show that somebody was grossly inaccurate, acting with malice. And I think there was a lot of rapid reaction to the, Dr- the Brett Favre news that was people... In particular, Shannon Sharp, who was upset that some people who lived in poverty were apparently being taken advantage of. And so, you know, he reacted very emotionally to it. Hyperbole, maybe. But in the end, I think uh, Brett Favre brought some of that on himself. It is interesting, though, because, like, Shannon, uh, Brett Favre had also sued Pat McAfee. But he withdrew the lawsuit after McAfee apologized on air for accusing Favre of stealing from people in need. Now, Favre has not been charged criminally in this case and has adamantly denied any wrongdoing. However, his defamation suit against Shannon Sharp tossed. Tossed out. Pat McAfee going, why did I do Why did I do that? Why did I fold? Pat McAfee took the, uh, you know, when you're, when you're betting, Stephen, what do they call that? And you're, you're betting a parlay, and they offer you the uh, hedge it, the cash back or whatever yeah, you can cash out. Yeah, Pat McAfee cashed out early. He had a parlay. Should have just wrote it out. Wouldn't have had to apologize. Number four. You like how this is going? I think so. Yeah, it's nice. Maybe the listeners can let us know if they like it better than you asking me, hey, what number are we on? Right. Um, Travis Kelsey... Uh, has filed for some <laughs> from some new trademarks. I don't know why these trademark stories are interesting to me, probably because I love marketing and branding and I just think it's interesting. But he's decided that he wants to cash in on some of these trademarks, um, including his name, his Instagram handle, which is apparently Killa Trav with three mm. L's. Yeah. His signature phrase, didn't know this, all right, nah, that's his, everybody. Like, in case you were using all right, nah, you might have to pay Travis Kelsey for that now. That's right. Flight 87 and Kelsey's Crunch with a K. Out of hand, man. Out of hand. Why? Um, why? The fil- Here's why. The filings claim that Kelsey will use these trademarks for a variety of purposes, including, wait for it, pins. Posters, bobbleheads, clothing, and even a cereal. Mm, Taylor Swift effect. Do you think Taylor went, you don't have all this trademarked? <laughs> I need what some all right nah cereal. That's what I need. What are we doing here? You know it's going to be Kelsey's Crunch. Yeah. <laughs> Kelsey's. Kelsey's Crunch. Maybe we should start uh, trademarking things. I think it already, oh no, 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 it already exists. My apologies. He already is in a partnership with the food store chain Hy-Vee to exclusively sell Kelsey's Crunch cereal. <laughs> well, there you go. Are we on four or five? See? It doesn't matter. We Number five. <laughs> I just did that for old times. <laughs> old times sake. Uh, this is five. Yes. Michael Jordan's son wants dad to be his best man. In his wedding to Larsa Pippen. Mm. How about that? Mm, they're getting married? I guess. They, they're engaged. 
Or at least they have, they're talking about being married. Yeah. Well, can't um, be, he's, get married or not. Well, I don't know. You, know. you can't be talking about who's the best man until there's an actual wedding planned. Well, he, so Marcus Jordan says he was the best man at his dad's wedding, and he, you know, so they want to keep the tradition going. Was Michael the best man at Lars's wedding to Scotty? You know? <laughs> she liked his speech then, so she's like, you know what? Bring your dad back. That would be good. Was he at her last wedding? No, that was, would require... Was Jordan's kid at her last wedding? That would require that I do research. See a toddler toddling around there? Stop it. Okay. It's like it... one of those photos, you know, you see it like on TikTok. Oh, my my fiancé was in the back of this picture I took seven years ago at a restaurant. Larsa could be like, you know what? My future husband was at my last wedding. In fact, Michael Jordan's wife was holding him. Breastfeeding him in the back what of the you, photo. What do you have against love, John? No. What do you have against love? I'm just saying. Love? I'm just saying. I don't know if this makes it any more clear, but Marcus said a wedding was in the works. That doesn't. That's no more clear. Sarah, are you? Do you have a caterer? Do you have a DJ? <laughs> then you got a best man. Can you, if imagine, you don't? Can you imagine going to Anna and say, "Hey, Anna, the wedding's in the works. You know what? We're, we're we have a wedding. It's gonna yeah. be in the works." That, Try that. that. Nothing, yeah. Try that with your kid. Your allowance is in the works. <laughs> Halloween's your, uh, in the works. Yeah. Your uh, your paycheck's in the works. Not going to fly. But Jordan, fly. So Jordan and Pippin have a beef, though, right? I don't think they do. No? I don't think they, they like each other, yeah. I, no, I, I, they don't like each other. No, yeah, they I don't, don't like each other. I know, but I don't think it's like a beef. I just think there's like... But the, but there's like there's it's safe to say there's bad blood there. I don't like, think it's bad blood. Buddies. I don't think it's like Charles Oakley wanting to crawl into the stands and fight somebody. Bad bad blood. I think it's more like, I think it's more like. Um, Jordan was an a hole, and so Scotty Pippen doesn't like Jordan, it. Jordan's hard. Jordan was hard to get along with. <laughs> the greats are, okay. The greats are because they demand a lot. I don't. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> you need a wide berth. You got a lot of ideas. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You need a Lots wide berth. Lots of elbow room. You know what this, uh, this whole thing where we go one and, you know, for five has done is sped this whole segment up. Is that a good thing? I think it is. Okay. It's, it's made it We're faster. We're trying to be efficient here at the five at five? No, not necessarily. Can we just go back through them? Stephen, how, how much sleep did you lose over the skater, the hockey skater? Getting his throat slashed by a skate. That is, uh, yeah. I, oh, it's just, it just it makes me shiver just thinking about it. Like that is, I mean that the fact that hockey players play hockey is insane to me. Like you're playing a sport with a blade on your feet. Like there's just I feel like there's going to be death everywhere around you, and then that puck's coming at you, and you have nothing to block it with your face. I just hockey. I don't get it, man. It's just it is not for me. That is not something I want to do. I um. I got to be honest with you. I wore a sweatshirt today that covers my neck. I I don't like it. And then I saw the video of it. And I think it was a cheap shot. But if I was a hockey player, I would wear that. You know, they have this neck thing that this company devised. It's got kind of a uh, a thicker fabric. It's like a turtleneck that has like a thin turtleneck that has a thick fabric around the neck. Yeah. It's not like a priest collar, you know, but it's, you know, it's. Sem- similar to that, yeah. It's got a little like a Velcro to it, you know, or whatever they call that. You know, what's that fabric that the uh, fancy companies make jackets out of? Gore-Tex. Gore-Tex. It's a yeah. little Gore-Tex uh, turtleneck. Yeah. 
that would uh, protect you from getting a skate to the neck. Uh, skate to the neck shouldn't happen. But don't you think they would make fun of you for wearing that? Like true hockey players? Make fun of me. I'm, you know, every time I around a skate, I'm not as nervous. Well, I know this. Like, you know noodling. Where do they, those people put their hands in the water and they catch catfish that way? Yeah. Yeah, like you can have gloves for that, but the true noodlers, they will like make fun of you if you have a glove because it's like, <laughs> you know, they can't do that. So I think hockey players do be the same way. Like, you got to be tough. Can't be, have no turtleneck on. Yeah, there you go. So the NHL doesn't require neck protection. No. But other leagues do. Hockey Canada requires yeah. neck guards. Yeah. It's true. So, I don't know. It feels like it would make sense. They've got to be able to devise something how that many hockey, hockey players, players would be willing to wear. How many hockey player wives are going, I need you to wear a yeah. turtleneck, and the hockey players are going, I'm not wearing a turtleneck. The guys are going to make fun of me. You know? <sighs> There. It's such a point of vulnerability. I mean, but how often does a skate make contact with a neck? It doesn't. But that's why. Did you see the video? No, I, I can't. Can you watch I, it? No, I don't want to. The dude is skating by. I don't want to. And it, the other skater's going behind him, and he lifts his leg and swings it oh, neck high behind him. I mean, it it to me, it looks like. Stephen, will you Google it and just react in real time to what you see? Oh. It, you're not. They don't show the whole thing. They cut it off right when it happens. But they John, show the motion. John will pay for your therapy. Later. They show the motion. I can tell you, I can't unsee it, and I can't stop thinking that it was an intentional act. You know, I don't know. I can't read the guy's mind, but it just—it was a weird thing for a hockey player to do as he's skating by somebody else mm-hmm. in the heat of the moment. Oh yeah, I just watched it here. Uh, yeah, so he's just skating, and all of a sudden he just just kicks the guy. His... Yeah, went with a throat kick basically. Oh, no, no, thank you. And I don't think he was. I don't think he intended. I don't think he set out to yeah. to to kill somebody. Right. But I think he was trying to harm him. Ugh. And I think you know, it was a frustrating move, a move of frustration. And you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm certainly, I, I think he's got to look himself in the mirror. So you know, and yeah, think, ask himself what that. he was doing, live with it. Um. The playoff rankings are out. We've had some reaction to that on today's show. Oregon's at 6. Washington's at 5. Set up nicely for the Pac-12. The selection committee obviously valuing Oregon's 35-6 to road win over Utah last Saturday. They've made Oregon the top-ranked one-loss team. I said it before, and I'll just say it again. Either one of those teams, Oregon or Washington, um, wins the rest of their regular season game games um, and wins the Pac-12 championship, they are in the playoff. Uh, No way around it. This is new for the Pac-12. Conference is in control of its own destiny in this way, and so this is all new. Um, That goes for Oregon and Washington. Ducks, um, uh, you know, Oregon's one, you know, one score loss on the road to Washington not being really counted against them as they're right behind Washington in the rankings. I think the committee is essentially saying that they think Oregon is as good as Washington by sticking him right there at six. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Did Judah Newby have any rapid reaction to that? I'd love to get his thoughts on it. Is Judah still still hanging out over there? Uh, yeah, he's getting ready right now, but uh, he's uh, uh, he's rapidly reacting to it and okay. ra- rapidly reacting to put his headphones in. He's getting his headphones on. I know. I, I know. I hate to put you on the spot. Judah, what did you think when you saw Oregon at six, Washington at five? Uh, I thought that that was right. You know, Washington should be above Oregon because they beat them. 
but boy, I agree with Herbie. I agree with the ESPN guys. Oregon's definitely playing better ball. Isn't that the crazy thing about college football? Like that October 14th game, man, it was iconic. Obviously, it didn't go Oregon's way, but it could serve the Ducks better than it could serve the Huskies. Penix has not been the same since the fourth quarter of that football game. In Oregon, you're totally right, John. It refocused them, it got them dialed in, and they are kicking butt since that game, and they've got all the motivation in the world. I just hope to see both of them play in Vegas again, and I don't know that Washington. I don't know that Washington will get there. Is that crazy to say? With USC still on their schedule and Oregon State still on their schedule, and uh, I think their their other game is 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 a tough game too. And the Apple Cup, like, is there a version of this where UW loses twice? Is that like totally crazy there, to think? It's not crazy because I, I actually think USC is going to give them a hell of a game, and and I think Oregon State's going to give them a hell of a game, and they've got to play Utah. They got to play Utah at Utah. So is there is there one loss in there? I think there's at least one loss in there. Is there a second loss? I don't know. I was looking at the odds today, and Oregon's the favorite to win the Pac-12. Like, it's not Washington anymore. I, I think that shows a lot of what people think of Oregon. I think even what Vegas thinks of Oregon, how good they actually are. I got, I got one more. Can Oregon win the national championship? <sighs> Can? Yes. Would I pick them today? I, I, look, if the, ga- if the game was played this Saturday... And they're playing Ohio State. I give them a puncher's chance to win it. Yeah, I think they can win it. I don't know if they will win it, but I think they can. I think they're I think they're good enough to win it. And I think they have the quarterback to win it. They have the run game to win it. Uh, I think it would be pretty magical to see Oregon win that thing. I think it'd be magical to see a Pac-12 team win it. Isn't that the answer though? The quarterback is good enough. Bo Nix is good enough to win the championship. I, is Lanning the coach to win it? I don't know. You know, he made mistakes. Right. He hasn't he hasn't won a bit. His biggest game is a win against uh, Utah. Utah on the road. He hasn't beat his rivalry teams. He hasn't beat Washington. He hasn't beat Oregon State. He hasn't beat a top-10 team, right? And we're talking about yeah. a national championship. I don't, we're asking him to do something he hasn't done yet, but I'd sure like to see it. I'd like to see that try. Bruce Barnum's coming up, Portland State football coach. He'll be with us next. You got the bald-faced truth. College football playoff rankings are out. The first initial rankings are out Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, one through four, Washington and Oregon at five and six. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, joins us every Tuesday to talk about his team. His team's coming off a big win over Eastern Washington, 47-35. Joby Mallory, running back at Portland State, named the Big Sky Conference Offensive Player of the Week. He scored one, two, three, four, five, six touchdowns, 241 rushing yards. Lights out day for Joby Mallory. Bruce Barnum here to talk about it. Uh, you just kept feeding him, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, thanks for having us, John. Um, had a day, you know, old Joe, the Jobinator from Gresham ran like his ass was on fire. He did a hell of a job. <laughs> yeah, he, he did, and... When did you have a sense that he was close to the tying the school record? I mean, that's a record that was set in like 1976. Did you did somebody on the sideline say, "Hey, Barney, he needs one more," or did you just let the game play out? No, n- not at all. I, I don't. I'll admit it. I, I had no clue. You know, I know he was scoring. All I knew was he was scoring too quick. You know, we're trying to matriculate the ball down the field, and he's popping 75 yarders, and I'm like, "Come on, Joe," you know. Let's uh, let's slow down here, burn some clock. But it, it was fun. It was a fun days. It's good to see him have that success. 
along with that unit. You know, if that's happening, there's a lot of people working out there. I am uh, looking at the success that you have in that game. Anna brought the girls out. Had a great time watching the game. I was covering Oregon, Utah, and Anna was texting me going, this Portland State game is so fun. What's it like when you get support from people and, and a crowd showing up? Well, it's fun. It's huge. Our kids love it. Obviously, you know, people like playing in front of people. I don't, I don't care who you are, you know. Um, uh, and then uh, right up to the end of the game. I mean, I turn around after, you know, shaking hands, yada, yada, and camera, and here comes a trophy. Um <laughs> running out on the field with the mighty Ann cut. I'm like, there's a stud. Look at that. I mean, that's pretty cool to have your president run out with the, with the uh, damn cup after the game. Yeah, let's talk about her for a second. We had her on the show last week. Really impressed with her. That video went viral. Sounds like you have a president who understands athletics, talking about a stadium, understands sort of the value of sports and athletics, and seems to really have connected with your guys. She has. Um, I think she's connected with the university. I mean, she came in, and, you know, I always think first 100 days, what's going to happen, you know, when you see change like that. And she started from day one. It was ready to go. And I said, I heard some of the things, you know, from my side, non-athletic. I'm like, all right, she's real. She's going to get this done. Anyway, then she turned athletics, and the interest is there. She's here, not just football. I mean, athletics in general, I think she – understands that, what that can do for a um, uh, campus community, the, the atmosphere. And honestly, I've always thought this is big picture, John, but, you know, what are you going to do after, you know? If they have that experience, I think in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, they're giving back, you know? If it's just a bus stop, they're not going to give to they're, they're, they're not going to care to give back, but give them an experience, include athletics, she sees that. And all of a sudden, uh, the money will jump and everybody will be happy. Bruce Barnum is with us, UC Davis, this week on the road. This is the coach that showed up and scouted you in person a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm sure you want this one. Well, he hard me. The problem is, I li- you know, we're friends. Uh, yeah. I was conf- he was watching his son coach on the other sideline. That's, you know, great. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, we can make a thing. I mean, he he hard me, but um, I would think at least call me, Hawk. You know, say, hey, Barney, I'm going to be there, you know. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna, not that I would change anything, but I don't know. Yeah, it, it irked me a little bit, but uh, beyond that, you know, it, it's another one. It's a big sky game, and um, uh, they're good. They got their, their damn tail back back. Uh, which I don't like, you know. I think he's a heck of a football player. Uh, he was back last week. Looked like he's a little winded, but um, so that'll help, you know, the Aggies. But I like where we're at right now. I like how we're playing. We're we're healthy as far as the guys that are still, you know, with us this season. So um, fast start and see what we can do down at, at Davis. Uh, Bruce Barnum with us. How healthy is your team right now uh, heading into this game? Well, you know, knock on wood, like I said, I've lost a couple, I've lost some impact people uh, for the season, um, John, which, you know, everybody has. Um, but I've lost some guys that were stars 
uh, as far as their contribution on game day. Uh, they got a team full of stars, but they on game day they were producing. Uh, but we have others, you know. Now we have Joby back. He's healthy, obviously. You saw him. He missed the Idaho State game. You know, uh, quarterback was banged up to Idaho State. Well, we've been banged up, but now we're healthy. We're rolling. He saw us healthy last week. Um, and I don't we, – we didn't lose – I don't think we're losing anybody from last week. You know, just a couple – you know, my finger got bent backwards or I ripped my, you know, fingernail off. He stepped on my toe. That kind of BS. But other than that, we're fine. We're ready to go. Loading on the – getting on the bus Friday a.m. You're bussing there. What do you see when you look on film with UC Davis? I know they're running back early in the year. Was out? Has he remained out? Uh, what do they look like on film? I don't know. He's back. Um, he's back last week, uh, number four on defense. He got hurt. He got rolled up last week. I'm not sure if he's playing. It was a, He was an All-American last year. Number 53 on defense, defensive end. Um, quarterback's playing well. Um, creative offense, you know. Um, Hawk will do it all. It seems like a different game plan uh, every week with him. Uh, but they play hard. You know, they back and forth from man to zone. They try to hide it, but you can if you get a couple keys. So um, they're they're playing well. They played in close games. They're st- they've ranked all year. You know, uh, in the top 25. So it's going to be a challenge. It'll be a challenge. But um, again, I like where we're at right now. Coach, uh, you know, when you get a performance like Joby Mallory, I mean, it's a Barlow High School kid. You're winning with some guys that are out of the area, but you've got enough kids locally that, you know, you're drawing local kids to your program. What does it say about high school football in the region when you can have some local kids having success for you out there? Uh, it's, it's the backbone of my program um i was just talking to somebody about this I, and my players know it i think they would back i know they would back me on this before we go out recruiting on the road because we live on uh, when joby came in um he came here because he had nowhere to go uh, but the, at the end of his first year i put him on scholarship you know um at the wine and roses deal i had him up on stage we live that i look in-house uh before because you know we only have so many scholarships but before i go out on the street or down i-5 or up i-5 um i look in-house and i give i just reached out to make sure i can give i'm going to give two to four away here uh, in the next 48 hours uh, to guys on my team already i mean that's a backbone of us and most of those are from the state of oregon yeah and i think you know do you do the coaches in the state of Oregon do a good job? What could we be doing better with high school football in Oregon, or are they doing a good job? Well, the, as far as pushing developing, their kids, you develop, mean? developing talent that you go, hey, I don't have to go out of state for, you know, I, I got enough kids here that I can build sort of a core in my program. Oh, I, I think the coaching in the teaching in this state, and I'm not just pulling ears here. I don't have, I mean, I, I like conflict. I think there's great coaches in this state. I think the problem in this state is not the coaching. It's just a straight population. People recruit larger population areas, you know. Um, that's why they travel to the bigger cities, the states with more population. But um, you talk about Nuggets, and we've talked about the portal 
um, I'm able to maybe get a couple talked into coming um, because money is going elsewhere also uh, from the other programs. Um, but this is easy. I mean, it's closer to us as far as recruiting. We know uh, the areas. We know the leagues. We know the coaches. We see them. We hear about them more. Um, you got the mighty Nemics who, you know, has a yep. show on them. He talks about them. We follow all that. Um, so if I can take an Oregon guy, I'll take him over anybody. And the coaching and the teaching, it, it's there. Don't let anybody tell you. Uh, coaches in the state of Oregon don't know what the hell they're doing. I mean, I know, I know coaches at the high school level who could um, be in the SEC. I mean, they're it's it's not always what you know; it's who you know. So there's quality coaches in this state, all up and down the I-5 quarter. Oregon, Washington, I think, are strong high school coaching knowledge. You guys will be on ESPN Plus in your game against UC Davis. Did- you know, how much does that kind of exposure matter to your kids when you're recruiting them? Well, it seems like every game's on TV now, but it, it matters. You know, you can go back and watch it. You know, um, on that, I don't, I haven't figured it out yet, but I, my guys say you can go like to some archive and watch it, and um, it matters though uh, because just the ESPN. You and I, oh, you don't. I'm older than you, twice your age, but I remember when ESPN came out. You know, there was one show, and it was something like this. That and MTV were about the same time. Um, I watched the first video, the one uh, they're going through a thing, a video killed the radio star, whatever it was on MTV, and then I watched ESPN. I'm like, this isn't going to make it. Who's going to watch this trash? (laughs) And now look at it. You got ESPN 6 plus. Give me, uh, I don't know what happened with MTV. I stopped. Um, In fact, that might have been the only time I watched MTV is that opener. But, um it's all over. The kids love it. And the conference loves loves when people twit you or when people like you. You know, and the conference counts all that stuff. Hey, our conference is being seen by they probably had a uh did a double backflip over the mighty cud, you know. Yeah. Um she goes viral the conference like, Oh, important state, you know. Oh, they love that. Out. They love yeah, that. So you know. I hey That's I just love- That's how you recruit, that's what you do now. Yeah, and look, you get that exposure, kids want to come play for you. Bruce Barnum, Portland State, uh, coaches with us. All right, uh, you know, you don't, you don't really talk about goals. We, you know, we don't talk often about goals, but you want to win your game this week. Win your game this week, and it sets up what for Portland State? The next one, you know, uh, our last home game, seniors, Montana, uh, number two or something in the country right now. I don't know what they are. Uh, Barnum kid, a lot, a lot of side notes to it, you know. Uh, the Barnum kid plays for the Grizz. Um, uh, the how head coach's son coaches at Portland State. There's all that, you know, uh, stories in the back. But it, it sets us up for the next one. They get bigger. If we win the next three, you know, uh, don't look at We are talking one and oh, my, that's my team. But um, I've been told, you know, by the powers that be, if we went out, you know, um, there's a hell of a chance we're in the playoffs. We'll be a bubble team, but 6-2 and two in this conference, you got a chance. So to be in that spot in November, you know, that's pretty good. There's a lot of teams that aren't right now. Um, so you always remember what you do in November. 
What are you doing on the radio, by the way? Aren't you? Uh, you should be out. Uh, it's trick or treat night. Yeah, John. we're gonna we're gonna You're start not gonna that. Do that. Yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. We wait for it to get dark, though. You know, is it dark out yet? I don't know. Uh, so, I don't know. I'm still watching film. Uh, <laughs> we yeah, we're gonna do trick or treating. We're gonna. You know why I'm gonna do it? Because the seven year old and the nine year old benefit from the fact that I had a I have the 21 year old and I saw how fast it went and so you know you right. have kids that are older you know how fast it goes and if I gave you a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old kid right now you'd go hell yeah I'll soak it up because I know it, it it doesn't last forever yes true I hope everybody um, listening right now heard that one and, and you know all kinds of Halloween stories that you can tell about everything and everybody listening to us I, I got one for you yeah give me it um halloween's all about you know i have i have two boys sean i have two boys and cooper the youngest um i loved halloween uh because he was cost effective i got him a, the coolest spider-man outfit you know it covered his head everything um i don't know what age but for six straight years of his you know his prime Halloween, knocking on the whole door thing, trick-or-treat deal. That costume is all he wanted to wear. So I bought one costume for that time, and he'd put on about a month ahead of time. Um, it was obviously very durable, you know, and he didn't grow much, uh, but he stretched out that last year, and so we saved a lot of money on costumes. But he was Spider-Man for about five to six years. I love that. Do you have one a costume that you wore as a kid? Saved? No. Do you? What do, do, you, what do you remember your costumes being? Oh, we didn't have a lot, a lot of money. It, it was kind of okay. What's in the closet? And Sally, yeah. my mom would, you know. Well, I remember a rubber, or not a rubber, a, a bubble gum cigar with a deal one year uh, I, I don't know I mean it was never bought I remember the one year we were at the place and it's like in a pack and you see the mask on the front you know of you, of what you're going to be like Casper mask or Superman or Wonder Woman's um, Spider-Man's but it was those cheap plastic masks and you couldn't really see the suit inside but the box looked cool we got that one year one year I got that Bud and Sal came up with enough cash to do that, and uh, it was my worst costume. I think I tore it by the running to the second door, you know, because I had a big ass as a kid. Yeah. I didn't have a big tummy like I do now, but I had a big ass and big thighs. I ripped right through that thing, so I had to go knock on the door, you know. Oh, look, it's Casper. Oh, look, there's his groin, you know. I love it. So hey. it didn't really work out. But we were the sheet. I was the sheet guy. Oh, here. Yeah. Let's cut this cheap sheet. I'm throwing this away, but here, Bruce, put yeah. this on. I love put this that. rope around your neck and go. I love it. Hey, Coach, th congrats on the win. Good luck this week against UC Davis. We'll talk to you next Tuesday. Happy Halloween. All right. Happy Halloween to everybody out there. Thanks for having us, John. Bye. There, there you go. Portland State Coach Bruce Barnum joins us every week on the show. I'll tell you about my costumes coming up. Um... Uh, for those of you who uh, who uh, want to tweet at me, uh, tweet your uh, if you got a kid who's trick or treating tonight, tweet a photo at me. Come on, I'll retweet the best ones. Um, all right, coming up, I'll tell you about some costumes I used to have as a kid. We went on the cheap too. We did the same thing. I had some very unusual Halloween costumes as a kid. Why don't you leave it here? You got the BFT.
When I was a kid, we had these unusual Halloween costumes. And, and I remember and I relate to those of you who are my age who used to wear those ridiculous plastic masks with a thin rubber band-like strap that was kind of stapled inside the mask and you had to pull it down over your face. And that plastic was uh, just a consistency that only screamed uncomfortable. And that was the mask you had. I don't know if you were Casper the Ghost or you were one of the Star Wars figures or what you were, but we had a very limited we had a very limited selection of Halloween costumes that we could buy in the store or whatnot. But we had some unusual costumes because my dad, as many of you listeners know, I've talked about this over the years, was a uh, professional baseball player. And he had played in the minor league system of the New York Mets and later the Montreal Expos in the 1960s. And so he had spring training jerseys from like the Pittsburgh Pirates, the New York Mets. He had his minor league jerseys, like when he played for the Durham Bulls and some different affiliates in the minor league uh, organizations of the New York Mets in the 1960s. And so he had these wonderful flannel jerseys that were um, authentic and valuable, we later found out. But when I was a kid, we used to wear those damn things to school. I, w I would wear a New York Mets jersey from the 1960s, authentic game-worn jersey, to school. I wore a Gil Hodges jersey to school. My dad had that jersey because at spring training for the Mets, they would take the, the jerseys from the prior years and they would throw them in a pile in the middle of the locker room and they would tell the minor league players, hey, if you need, uh, if you want to grab an extra jersey, you can grab one. And so my dad would, you know, grab a jersey and he had a sleeveless Pittsburgh Pirates jersey that was just fantastic. That was awesome jersey. And he later sold those in, with uh, Sotheby's Auction House, and he sold all of those jerseys and decided he was no longer in need of them, I guess, because we weren't wearing them as, as Halloween costumes. But I wore those jerseys to school, and I wore his Durham Bulls jersey to school, and I wore his Mets jersey to school, and I look back at that now and just shake my head because those things were like, you know, worth a couple thousand bucks when he ended up selling them later. And by the way, I bought the Durham Bulls jersey. I didn't tell my dad. When my dad went to auction off the jerseys, he said, does anybody have any sentimental attachment to any of these jerseys? And I did to the Durham, Durham Bulls jersey because, you know, Bull Durham, the movie, had come out. And the fact that my dad played in the minor leagues for the Durham Bulls was a big deal. And so I just said, no, I'm not interested. And then I got online and I just bid on the thing and I won it in an auction. I think I paid 600 bucks for it. But um, And later my dad was like, why? I would have just gave it to you. And I said, I didn't want to take money away from you. So... I digress. Today is Halloween. My kids have multiple costumes. Seven-year-old was Cruella DeVille. She's also a witch. She's going to do a wardrobe change, I guess. The nine-year-old is Medusa. She's got this big headset where uh, snakes are coming out of her hair and stuff like that. And uh, I know your kids, if you're trick-or-treating tonight, are going to have a great time. I encourage people to, you know, just be safe out there. Flashlights are a good idea. If you're driving and you're in a neighborhood where kids are trick-or-treating, public service announcement, keep an eye out. Go slow. You're not in a hurry. You're not late being somewhere. We don't want anybody uh, getting hurt on Halloween. And uh, just everybody be safe out there. Um, if you want to get a podcast to this radio show, you can get it wherever you get a podcast. I'm not going to insult you by saying, hey, go to www. No, just go wherever you get a podcast and look for John Canzano or the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. 
If you want to read my column, I kind of wrote about the radio show in today's column. It was kind of fun to see the worlds collide. As that Dabo Sweeney clip with that uh, with that caller who uh, called into his coach's show, that Dabo Sweeney clip uh, went viral and. Football coach and radio audience going at it. Um, uh, Tyler from Spartanburg called into the radio show hosted by the Clemson coach. And I wrote about that today because, look, when I first started in this business, as I mentioned early in the show, I had a veteran radio person who worked in the state of Oregon, who you all know, who told me, don't take calls. Callers are idiots. Don't take calls. And I dismissed that. I've always taken calls. I've always enjoyed the callers. I I know that sometimes the callers totally disagree with what I have to say, and that's okay. It would be a boring world if we all agreed, but I do think that the callers speak for a segment of the audience. And sometimes hearing a caller, even if the caller is deranged and unhinged and delusional, hearing somebody talk about it is, I think, good for the rest of the audience to say, oh, look over and go, oh my gosh, am I that person? Like, am I sounding like that? So, and often some, you know, in other times, the callers will make me think think about things that I hadn't thought about before, hadn't considered. So I will continue to take calls. I appreciate those of you who listen to the show and call into the show. And the dirty little secret is, when I was 10, 12, 13, 14 years old, I was a sports radio show diehard P1 listener. I was listening at night to KNBR in San Francisco and Sports Phone 68, Ken Dito was the host, and he took calls all show long. And some of them were idiots who called in and said, you know, we need to trade Jack Clark. Jack Clark was my guy for the San Francisco Giants. You know, Jack the Ripper? Come on, you can't trade that guy. And in the end, I had that transistor radio buried underneath my pillow, and I would listen to KNBR 68 at night, and I would hear the post-game show, and I even called in a couple of times and offered my thoughts. I used to listen to the transistor radio underneath my pillow. I'd turn it up just enough so I could hear it, and I would listen to that sports radio show at night. And there was part of me even then that was probably preparing for this moment right now. I appreciate everybody who reads me at johnconzano.com. That means a lot to me. That's where you can read me exclusively now. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. What works for you works for me. And I appreciate those of you who listen to this radio show and make it part of your day. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time. Happy Halloween, everybody.